0: Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 300 of your Take Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Ahead of the Curve, an interview with Lyme pioneer, Dr. Alan McDonald. My name is Richard Johansson.
1: And I'm Matt Sabatello.
0: Folks, we wanna thank you for following us for 300 episodes. This is a benchmark episode for us. And for this special episode, we invited one of our favorite people in the entire Lyme disease community, pioneer, Dr.
1: Alan McDonald. And you're gonna be blown away by the recent research done over the last year by Dr. McDonald. He's had some recent discoveries about Lewy body dementia and how the scaffolding of these Lewy bodies is actually the Lyme DNA itself. He's also done some research regarding sequestering which is how the Lyme bacteria itself actually uses your immune response to protect the spirochete. We talk about liver infections and how 20% almost of the acute early Lyme patients have liver issues pertaining to Lyme disease that affect detox, we talk about leukemia and how leukemia is being found now to be caused by Lyme disease. We talk about glioblastomas and brain cancer that we talked about on our previous podcast with Dr. McDonald and some groundbreaking new discoveries there as well. And finally, we talk about the connection between Lyme disease and suicide and how important it is to better understand this connection.
0: So, folks, we're really excited to reintroduce to you the Lyme pioneer who is always ahead of the curve, Dr. Alan McDonald. Dr. Alan McDonald, one of the Tick Bootcamp favorites, uh, quite frankly, this is episode 300 of our podcast, so it's one of our benchmark um, podcasts, and we wanted to have a special guest, and Dr. McDonald, you're the special guy, so how does it feel to be the special 300th episode guest of the Tick Bootcamp podcast?
2: Well, that's a privilege. It really is. The second time I've gotten to uh, be on the program, that's
0: much appreciated. Well, we're really excited to have you. And, and, and thank you for reminding our folks that you were actually profiled in episode 171 of the Tick Boot Camp Podcast. So if folks want to know more about you, because we're not going to spend a lot of time today uh, giving folks your, your background, because that is available in episode 171. So again, thank you, Dr. McDonald, for taking now uh, a second uh, window of, um, of of time out of your life and out of your family's life to um, to meet with us and uh, to speak with us. So Dr. McDonald, we're going to talk with you about Um, if you would be kind enough, talking to you about six different topics today. I just want to highlight those for you. First thing we want to talk to you about is the research you're doing on Lewy body dementia and some of the advances that you've made there. You want to speak about um, uh, Lyme negative serology and some of the work that you're doing specifically on uh, sequestration. I'm going to talk to you about the liver and some of the work that you've done with the liver and specifically liver damage that's done during the acute phase of Lyme disease and the impact that that's having on folks in the community. Uh, The fourth issue we want to talk with you about is some of the research you're doing with CLL and leukemia and some of the challenges uh, that Lyme disease is creating in that window. I'm going to sort of do a follow-up with you on the research you're doing with glioblastomas because you did Give us some really powerful insights last time, but we know you've made some advances on your research and some new findings. And mm-hmm. the last thing, which of course is really important for folks in the uh, Lyme community, not that any of these are less important, but you've done some research with uh, with a, a person who had um, who had unfortunately committed suicide, and you made some mm-hmm. findings there. So, Dr. McDonald, let's let's begin at the top, if we if we could, and let's talk about Lewy body dementia and uh, the impact. Uh, that your research is having in that arena. and and of course, folks know that you've been doing this research for you know close to forty years. You're one of the line pioneers. And a lot of the research that you were doing back in the day was actually ignored. And now you've gone from being the outsider who couldn't get his couldn't get his research published to now being published in mainstream um research um you know, in mainstream research journals. Let's talk about first Lewy body dementia, if we could. I published
2: uh, just recently uh, a major discovery in uh, four patients who had Lewy body dementia and uh, whose autopsy brains were donated to the Paul DeRay Research Foundation for our studies. Uh, And we found that uh, the... Um, Lewy body, which is a very small uh, red staining structure that's sometimes hard to see inside of neurons. It's it's uh, very small, but it, it is associated with neuron death and with uh, progressive uh, dementia. I found that that structure contains DNA. Now, up till this point, it was always thought that uh, the Lewy body was... Uh, um, protein-related structure and, and uh, that the protein inside the Lewy body was alpha-synuclein. And they went even further and said that because the Lewy body stains with alpha-synuclein, the alpha-synuclein protein there is toxic and it's causing the damage. Um, my research has overturned that, uh, it turned, it on its, turned it on its head and uh, I've discovered that um, alpha-synuclein protein, which is healthy in normal brain nerve cells, and is uh, present in increased amounts and in, in Lewy body brains, inside the Lewy body, is actually a DNA, pr- DNA binding protein. And so it's, its mission statement is to bind to DNA. <laughs> and um, that means that because it stains very darkly with this protein, uh, the um, target is DNA inside the Lewy body. And I went even further and I used my DNA probes for Borrelia, and I found that the DNA is the Borrelia DNA in five patients, I mean, four patients. So that's a major, major discovery because it, uh, uh Lewy body dementia is the uh, um, second most common dementia after Alzheimer's disease. And indeed, one third of Alzheimer's patients have a Lewy body component. And my grandfather's Lewy body dementia got me started in research. I wanted to find out what I could about that. So. You know, his uh, disease was marked by uh, loss of his intellectual function and and very disturbing hallucinations like flying monkeys and giant insects in the apartment that he lived in. And those are scary type uh, hallucinations which mark uh, the end uh, of Lewy body uh, dementia. Uh, Of course, Robin Williams had Lewy body dementia and we all uh, felt terrible when he uh, passed away. Um, So there are Uh, Ted Turner has Lewy body dementia. So a lot of people in the news have Lewy body dementia. Uh, The wonderful thing about it, if there is a wonderful thing, is it's not related to amyloid at all. Alzheimer's is a so-called amyloid toxic disease. Lewy body is a so-called alpha-synuclein toxic disease. So what I found is an independent pathway from infection of the brain with Borrelia, namely Lewy body dementia, Uh, that gets us to prove that that infection causes the dementia of Lewy bodies. Right now, there's a great controversy about amyloid and toxic and whether the uh, original paper was uh, fraudulent and that most of the amyloid research in the last uh, 30 years has been uh, misplaced. Uh, So there'll still be a, a discussion about that. But Alzheimer's disease is not necessarily connected in a substantial way to a Lewy body problem. Alzheimer's disease is a separate problem in the final event, the nerves die.
0: So, so Dr. McDonald, let me ask you to pause there for a second. I want to walk it back a little bit so that we can yeah. give folks a context here um, yeah. for our community. So, our, our community, of course, as you know, are folks who are, in most cases, uh, managing uh, chronic Lyme disease and, and the family members and supporters of people who people who are on that journey. Right. And um, I'd like to sort of like give this a sort of a higher level first, and then we'll then we'll walk it down into some of the some of the great research you're doing and, and some of the findings that you're making. So we have, we have a lot of folks who are suffering with uh, neurological Lyme symptoms. Sometimes it's um, sometimes it's brain fog, sometimes it's uh, it's it's even worse. Matt, for example, had uh, had very, very severe neurological uh, challenges. And, and, and I guess the, the first high level question that I have for you is, is uh, are your findings and all the research uh, that you're doing giving you insight into what long-term impacts folks could suffer from uh, if they are suffering from neurological Lyme disease and why is that uh, significant uh, in the context of people like Robin Williams um, and Ted Turner and other people who are, who are uh, dealing with or have dealt with these challenges? Well, the last thing I want to
2: do is to scare all the Lyme community into thinking that they're going to have a uh, an end-of-life uh, Alzheimer or end-of-life Lewy body uh, consequence. Uh, I want to uh, find an optimistic uh, uh, pathway so that understanding the brain infection, how it works, uh, and why it causes the brain to be scrambled uh, can be uh, diagnosed early and treated with antibiotics. And then uh, those... Um, problems that are a result of untreated, chronic, over decades, uh, infection of the brain can be stopped in its tracks. Now, in the worst case, after Lyme disease has done its maximum disease damage in the brain, it has destroyed neurons. The neurons are gone. That's the worst case. In the early case, the neurons are just irritated and uh, inflamed and still alive and the spirochetes haven't killed the neurons. So we wanna intervene at the stage where the spirochetes are in contact with brain neurons and other brain cells and get them to be eradicated with proper therapy. And so that's that's the, the incentive of this is to get the disease diagnosed properly and get it diagnosed early and get it treated early. So that it can be eradicated.
0: So the good news uh, now, is, so the good news is, Doctor McDonald, if we are diagnosed early and we are treated early, then these challenges are not challenges that we're going to need to face. But that's why early, early diagnosis, uh, competent diagnosis, and early intervention is really important. Is that is that your 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 premise? Yeah, but the problem is
2: that the uh, political community demands antibody positive results to confirm a suspicion of Lyme disease in any part of the body. And if you don't have a positive antibody test that satisfies the skeptics, then they'll tell you that you don't have it. You have something else. You have uh, maybe a post-Lyme situation or you have something that's a cross-reaction a false positive. So those those are stumbling blocks. And in part two of my research, which we're gonna talk about, I'm going to explain why you can have robust active living spirochetes in your system, in your tissue and your blood, but these will be invisible because the spirochetes absorb all of the antibody to their surface and it's nothing left for the machine to test in the serum. That's diabolical. But that, when you understand that that's going on, we replace all of the current UISA tests with a better test to find antibody-coated spirochetes or biofilms and then use that as your diagnosis. Therefore, you don't have to uh, be held back by a bad technology, which is doomed biologically because the spirochete has outwitted us, absorbed all the antibody onto its surface, and leaves nothing left for the machine to find. So your blood tests, of course, are going to be negative.
1: Dr. McDonald, we're going to get there because the next part of our conversation is going to be all about Lyme negative serology and how smart the spirochetes are yes. in regard to their ability to hide from antibodies and the sequestering term, right? So we're really excited to get to that and share with our listeners what you've learned and how we can overcome that part of our journey. But yeah. I want to go back to the Lewy body dementia case here, right? Because, you know, sometimes you're you're, 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 you're we're talking about this. And I'm questioning a lot of things because I'm not as brilliant as you, right? So I want to just break it down to make sure I understand exactly what you're saying. So Louis body dementia, how I understand it, Dr. McDonald, mm-hmm. is that a protein or a deposit or a mass forms in the brain. And that mass- inside,
2: inside the nerve cells.
1: Inside the nerve cells. Inside
2: the actual nerve cells. It has to be inside the nerve cells to count. Okay. It starts out by getting inside the nerve cell and it makes a glob- It's about the size of the nucleus of the nerve cell and it doesn't uh, stain blue it stains red and red staining stuff is thought to be protein and so the protein that they worry about is the alpha synuclein
1: toxic protein so-called toxic okay that doesn't belong uh, in a healthy nerve gotcha so when you're doing your testing and you're staining your samples and you see red, not blue, that's indicative of a protein when you're doing an analysis of of, brain, of a brain tissue or a brain sample. And when it's always historically been believed that these globs or these proteins or these masses inside the nerve cells had this substance called alpha-synuclein, which is I think also called ASN, right? Synuclein, yeah. The Synuclein. nucleon, alpha-synuclein. And this alpha-synuclein, this ASN, was always believed to be the driving force behind this dementia because when you have this asn inside of a nerve cell in this glob then it causes this dementia where you have deterioration of your brain thinking movement behavior mood etc correct is that so far accurate yeah it's something that happens in
2: parkinson's disease all the time um now remember that healthy nerves have healthy alpha-synuclein and and parkinson's lewy bodies have so-called toxic chemically modified alpha-synuclein. And so those are two different things to keep straight. Right. All alpha-synucleins are not bad. If you get the healthy one, which you're born with and healthy nerves have it,
1: that's fine. If you get the so-called toxic one, then you're in trouble. But are there really toxic ones? Because what I heard you say earlier, Dr. McDonald, is that we may be mistakenly identifying the ASN inside of these globs as being the root cause of dementia, But it sounds like they're just binding to this DNA, which is their mission statement, which is the DNA of Lyme disease or Borrelia burgdorferi, which may be the deeper root cause. Is that what I heard you say earlier? I just want to make sure I understood that part correctly.
2: You're absolutely brilliant. Right. Uh, Absolutely brilliant. The glob is actually a glob of DNA. And so because it is a glob, it doesn't have a membrane around it. It's just a glob. It doesn't belong in the cytoplasm, and it has a lot of alpha-synuclein binding to it and that makes it a Lewy body. But the alpha-synuclein that is, is in the textbooks, it's supposed to be a toxic one. What I'm saying is it may not be toxic at all. It may be doing its duty because it's binding to the infected DNA
1: in the glob, and the infection DNA is killing the nerve, not the alpha-synuclein. So mainstream, mainstream medicine right now believes there's healthy ASN and toxic ASN, yes. but your studies, your research, your analysis of these samples of these brains are now showing that ASN is just binding to this Lyme disease DNA, and it's doing what it was designed to do. It's God-given purpose, as you call it, right? So you're, yes. you're arguing that based on your studies, ASN may not be toxic at all. In any case, it may just be doing what it was designed to do. And yes. Lyme disease is at the root cause of Lewy body dementia, correct?
2: That's exactly right. Now let's step aside a little bit and take one look at amyloid. Amyloid and Alzheimer's disease, according to the dominant theory, is toxic amyloid, right? The amyloid is toxic. Well, Harvard has shown that amyloid in Alzheimer plaques is actually an antibiotic, good, beneficial amyloid. It's not toxic at all. And this, this furor over the, over the fraud in Alzheimer amyloid research really shakes the amyloid uh, people to, the, to, the, to, the, to their roots, because a lot of what they have been looking at with bias may be false, just like uh, alpha-synuclein may not be toxic, amyloid may not be toxic. It, it's a major, major, major coup Ch-
1: change in thinking. Well, I think this is important because sometimes we get set in our ways and people are getting sick and they're declining and they're dying from things. And if we start to understand better what's going on, we can maybe treat these patients, right? Because yeah. if we catch them early enough to Rich's point, we might be able to treat them and get to the root, which is the Lyme disease, and maybe get these patients better, right? So, yeah, you know, we exactly. know you're your testing, your are fish testing, and all of your stains are really cutting edge and brilliant. And we know you've consulted with Yale and a ton of other universities still to this day in retirement. But in one of your studies, you know, we, we have your study in front of us, which was brilliant. I mean, it was just published, right, in, on August 10th of this year, 2022, all that microbial DNA, globular liquid crystal-like deposits inside Lewy bodies in four Lewy body dementia patients, as you talked about earlier. And it's really deep. And Rich and I spent days going through it and trying to take notes, and we still don't fully understand it. So we're trying to break it down for our listeners here to, to understand how deep Lyme disease can be beyond just, as you noted, some joint pain, right? So when you did these studies, Mm -hmm. you found, so you, you, you had these brains autopsied and they demonstrated Borrelia spirochetes, Borrelia specific proteins, and Borrelia specific DNA inside of the Lewy bodies, which attracted the ASN. And again, that was, we believe the root cause, the, the spirochetes. But when you, what do you mean by Borrelia specific proteins, Borrelia specific DNA and Borrelia spirochetes? Is it is, is it possible that there's an active, fully functioning spirochete, but then almost like a remnant? Because we've heard studies from like Lyme disease.org and coming out of other universities that remnants of spirochetes can cause people to be sick as well, and we don't really fully understand what that means. So can you explain to our listeners what the difference between a spirochete, a Borrelia-specific protein, and a Borrelia-specific DNA identification inside these Lewy bodies actually means to, to our listeners?
2: Yes. Uh, the... Uh, Spirochetes that are in the body may be alive for a period of time and then may die. And at uh, that point, then they can disintegrate. And all of the chemicals that are in the living spirochete uh, can be gathered into a glob so that the uh, dead uh, spirochete DNA uh, forms the glob in the Lewy body. It can also be in a biofilm, because biofilm is a mixture of live and dead. And most of the protective goo in a biofilm is derived from once living, but now dead, spirochetes. And biofilms are a marker of chronic infection, but they, are, they have a mixture of live Borrelia and dead Borrelia. And the live component, we have uh, ways of looking at it with DNA and the dead component. We can use the same DNA probes to prove that the DNA is, is also still there um the proteins are are, are uh, a wrapper for uh the dna when in a living uh, spirochete so you have the proteins on the outside the proteins on the inside and then your living dna but when they die off you'll have a, rem- a remnant and the remnant can can form the glob in the lewy body case
1: so these remnants in the lewy body case can be part of the glob, but also active spirochetes and also biofilms, right? So they, they don't discriminate yes. any of these forms. But I guess yeah. the bigger question in specific to Lewy body and specific to these proteins, but also broader picture, can these remnants, these dead spirochetes, these non-active, non-alive Lyme bacteria that for whatever reason, your body is not able to process out or detox out, can they be harmful and can they cause damage? And it sounds like in this case, yes, because they're causing the Lewy body dementia by being the root cause of these globs or masses or protein inside the nerve cells in the brain. Is that, is that correct?
2: Yes, yeah, so well, there, there are two areas where the glob can wind up. First, it, sta- it starts in the cytoplasm. And at that time, the, the healthy nerve nucleus is separate. So um, the, um, the compartment is cytoplasmic for Lewy body, and then uh, the um, nucleus with the uh, normal human DNA. Over time, the DNA that's in the cytoplasm can work its way into the nucleus. And once it gets into the nucleus, it can contaminate the healthy human DNA and lead to nerve death. So as long as the uh, DNA of the Borrelia in the nerve in the cytoplasm stays in the cytoplasm, the nerve cell has a chance to stay alive. When the DNA gets into the nucleus, and then causes the nucleus to die, then the whole nerve dies. And you have an empty space in your brain, which used to be a space where a a nerve cell lived. And as a disease progresses, you get more and more of these empty spaces. You can see them uh, when you do the microscopic study and you can see, well, there used to be a nerve inside that, that round space and now it's empty. Or you can see there's a round space with kind of a decrepit nerve that isn't healthy looking is it's starting to break up, and you can track it under the
1: microscope. So, nerve cell deaths can be tracked under the microscope. And this is really brilliant information. So, you're saying a dead Lyme bacteria, right? So, dead, you know, these remnants or these globs of Lyme disease, if they're inside the nucleus, they can lead to nerve death, even though they're already dead, right? So, is that yes, accurate? Be- okay.
2: Yes, because, they, you know, the, the human D- DNA doesn't uh, coexist peacefully with other infection DNA. You know, we're designed to keep it out. And we don't want to have any uh, extra DNA from some infection getting into our DNA compartment. That's that's hallowed ground. Right. You don't want to have infection DNA in your in your nucleus. You know, viruses that kill nerves get into the nucleus and kill by destroying the structure of the DNA in the nucleus. Rabies does that all the time. So, you know, uh Cell death is a consequence of um, DNA turning up in cells in sites uh, like the nucleus of the cell, or cytoplasm of the cell, where it does not belong.
1: So let's talk about what we understand in the Lyme community to be detox, right? When we, our bodies, either through herbal therapy, antibiotics, our, our own immune system, et cetera, starts to kill off the spirochetes, whether it's in blood or in our brain tissue, et cetera, when the bacteria dies, we know we've heard of the Herzheimer reaction and your body has it. you have to detox and you have to open right. up your drainage pathways, right? But in this case, it sounds like when these remnants of the Lyme bacteria exist, they can still cause damage if they're inside the nucleus. So how does the body rid dead spirochetes or dead Lyme bacteria, these globs in the brain. Is that still an immune response? Is that a detox response? Is it different because it's inside the cell and it's harder to get the remnants outside of the cell? Like, Walk us through that process there. What's supposed to happen in a, in a healthy body when the Lyme bacteria dies inside the brain, inside a cell and how we can get rid of it.
2: Okay, well, the, the, the uh, sequence of events is that the spirochete uh, comes from the tick, it gets into the body, it gets into the blood, it gets into the brain and then it gets into the neuron cells, right? So it moves from all these different compartments, jumping from one to the other. Antibiotics and detox can help uh, with the spirochetes that have not died yet. As far as what, what you can do with a glob of DNA from a dead spirochete, I'm not really sure, but the goal is to get the therapy working before the thing dies inside the neuron. After it dies inside the neuron, then you may just have to kiss that up to God and, 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 uh, and uh, be, uh, survive uh, very well with one less neuron. Everyday healthy people on planet earth are estimated to lose thousands of neurons from their brain just because of normal aging. So loss of neurons is not uh, against physiology and biology. We were born with more neurons in our brain than we have when we die. So you know we have progressive loss of neurons, and some of that is just natural. You know they don't uh, they don't live forever. Spirochetes a- accelerate neuron cell death, and because of that accelerated death, then you get you know when the neurons are dead, then you, you have to make the best of what you have after that. So you want to get in a detox before the neuron is is, is killed and before the glob is there.
1: And when we speak about these globs, we're, we're still referring to the globs, which represent this mass or the protein inside the nerve cells, which are causing Lewy body dementia. Those are one and the same for the globs. We're talking about what the dead remnant bacteria, they're not, they're not separate, correct? This is all still the globs in, uh, of proteins in the brain that lead to Lewy body dementia, correct? Uh,
2: partial correct. The globs have protein and they also have DNA and the protein is designed to bind to the DNA. So without the DNA in the glob, the protein wouldn't attach to the glob, right? Mm. Ah, see, now you got it. Gotcha. Right? So you have a double package, right? You have, And in my pictures from the paper, you can see that there's a picture of proteins in Lewy bodies, there's a picture of DNA in Lewy bodies. So there's it, it, both things going on. They say that there's probably 800 different chemical species inside a Lewy body. It's not just a couple of things. There's a lot of other things. That some of it maybe sells that you know sell products that the, say, the host
1: makes, and some may be uh, products of what the infection makes. So talk to us more about your research study that dropped in August, right? Because this is was really powerful, and there's a lot of great information. And I know one of your major conclusions is that Borrelia or Lyme is really the scaffolding. Uh, I'm sorry that that Louis bodies. Are built upon a scaffolding of Brelia or Lyme DNA, right? And that was something that was sort of groundbreaking in the study. How was it received by the community? And are any of your peers and fellow researchers and scientists reaching out to extend this research, or collaborate, or or take it to the next level? I've
2: sent it to uh, the, the um, Louis Body uh, research teams around the country. I you know I just emailed the directors of all the programs, and I sent the. Uh, the full manuscript to them. I got a reply from one uh, director of Louis body research in, um, in, in a medical center, I'm not gonna mention who it is. I don't want that person to get in trouble, but I, all the other people just uh, re- rejected it or didn't, didn't reply to it. The thing is that uh, this will fundamentally change not only Lewy body research, but all of Parkinson's research. Because they both are Lewy body diseases, so this is kind of chip, chip away at the Michael J. Fox Parkinson's Research Network community. It's going to chip away at the uh, Stuart Udall uh, endowed um, research programs in Parkinson's disease at major medical centers around the country, like you know Harvard and Hopkins and all those places. And it's going to uh, fundamentally impact what's going on with that research too. And uh, hopefully uh, people will find value in it and start to look at the possibility that uh, they've been missing infection DNA inside of uh, Parkinson's infected or Parkinson's disease cells. There is something that's very, very delicious. It's called post-encephalitic Parkinson's disease. And uh, it came up where they had an excess of Parkinson's cases after the uh, big flu epidemics uh, uh, earlier in the... Uh, last century. And they, they said that, in, in fact, after you have a very bad encephalitis with a, with a, a flu or a bad flu, some of those people uh, will get Parkinson's and, and the, and the resi- residual increase in number is noteworthy. There's enough of them get Parkinson's after having this infection that they've coined the term post-encephalitic Parkinson's. Isn't that beautiful? So it opens up a, a 12-lane expressway to truth because infection and Lewy bodies and Parkinson's is already benchmarked and approved in the textbook as a real entity. So what I'm doing is I'm adding a little thing called Lyme disease to the infection preceding a Lewy body disease, namely Lewy body dementia, but it will also probably play out in Parkinson's disease because uh, Lyme can probably have a Parkinson's type post Uh, you know, post-infection consequence. So you you have a lot of bonus points here. The thing is that if people have invested all the time and money in in, in the wrong direction for the past 20 years, they're not going to be happy about my research because they have to pay their tuition payments and, 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 you know, make sure that they can, you know, continue to get the grants for stuff that they've been studying, which may not be relevant to the real cause. So it's a major threat to the research community because you have to retool everything and Lewy body of any type to get to uh,
1: uh approve my uh our results what i find fascinating though dr mcdonald is that it's medically accepted in the world that bacteria in general can drive parkinson's and Lewy body dementia but when you start to say specifically Lyme disease, which almost 15% of the world population has been infected with, can be a contributing factor. They want nothing to do with you, right? So again, Lyme disease seems to be this controversial disease all around. And once again, you're, you're clearly and definitively proving the connection and people are just saying, ah, that's crazy. We're not going to believe that. Just like they did to you 30 years ago up until you know, the last couple of years when they started to realize, you know what, this guy's right. There's some real stuff here. But I do, I do want you to break down Parkinson's because we, we understand Lewy body dementia. You you know explain what that is simply for us. Can you explain what Parkinson's disease is and how it's different than Lewy body dementia and then how your, your research and your studies are connecting Lyme disease as being a trigger to Parkinson's disease?
2: All right, well, the Lewy body in the nerve is essential for Parkinson's. The, the actual anatomy of which nerves get the Lewy body deposits separates Lewy body dementia from Parkinson's. In Parkinson's, it's in the substantia nigra at the base of the brain and in uh, lower areas of the cortex called the striato-nigral cortex. It's a big mouthful, but it's not up on the top of the brain where we have a cortex. And in Lewy body dementia. The dementia that Lewy bodies are in the cortex region and may not be present at all down in the Parkinson's region of the brain. So there's different anatomies that are diseased. The only other you know, important thing to keep in mind is that many Parkinson's people will not get dementia. They'll just have the movement disorder and the shakes and the, the tremors and the, you know, that's a movement disorder. Now there's a subset of Parkinson's that gets dementia, but not everybody with Parkinson's and you know the Lewy body is essential to Parkinson's will get dementia. Uh, the cortical part, the Lewy body up on the top of the brain, the Robin Williams type people will have dementia And maybe have a little bit of a shake. You know, he was originally diagnosed with kind of a sort of a Parkinson's thing because he had some shakes, but it wasn't as major as a major Parkinson's-like, but he had some Parkinson-like symptoms. So it was spread across the upper brain and the lower brain. And that's the anatomy that defines the differences between the lesions. Once you have the Lewy body inside the nerve, the rest of the biology is as I've described. You got the glob and the cytoplasm, you got the covering of the alpha-synuclein protein on the cytoplasmic blob, and the DNA eventually works its way into the nucleus, and then that kills the kills the, uh, the nerve cell, no matter where it is.
1: So really, it's all driven by Lewy body, whether it's Parkinson's or Lewy body dementia. It just depends on the geographic region in the brain at which these globs form and impact the person, whether it's just dementia, or I shouldn't say just, whether it's dementia with Lewy body dementia or the movement disorder with Parkinson's, but it's the same underlying uh, we'll call it the same underlying trigger for both conditions. Correct?
2: Yeah, it's it's uh, the action is in the nerve cell. That's where the action is, and everybody agrees that the nerve injury is the root cause of each of these diseases, and it's just what what gets the nerve nerve injury going and what keeps it going is where the research is.
1: And I do want to correct something. I, I think I may have said incorrectly earlier when when you had said that it's accepted that I think viruses trigger. Louis body, did you say bacteria as well or just viruses? And your, your research is now introducing the concept of bacterial driven Louis body.
2: I'm not sure that viruses trigger Louis body. I'm, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I, I think that Louis body uh, uh, changes in post Parkinson's, which means post influenza Parkinson's, are related in that specific definition. That's a viral illness that, that overwhelms the brain. And it's like a major flu, like the 1918 flu, was a, it's all viral. And then after that, there was a, this, you know, Lewy body type um, consequence. So yes, viruses can do it, but you have to be sure you know what your viruses are, and you have to be sure you know what your bacteria are. You don't want to make a broad, broad, you know, sweeping statement. You want to be very, very, very specific. We're in the era, era of precision medicine. So we speak with precision, and we show pictures with precision, and we don't uh, you know,
1: confuse one category with another. So I think you're saying which specific viruses can lead to it versus which specific bacteria, like Lyme disease, can lead to it as well is what you're saying, correct? Yes. So... Walk us through what's next in your work with Lewy body dementia and all of the brain research you're doing specific to Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia and your research study that came out in August before we move on to the next topic, which is equally as interesting, which is that Lyme negative serology and sequestering. Well, unfortunately, I don't have access to
2: any Lewy body Parkinson's type tissue. I don't have any Parkinson's in my uh, uh, collection of cases for study. It doesn't mean I can't get some, but right now I've been studying just the Lewy body dementia thing. And uh, in order to get four cases, it took me six years. That They're not standing on every street corner. And uh, you have to be very lucky sometimes to get a brain autopsy that has a, a patient who was suffering from Lewy body. All of my patients had the two key features clinically, and that is that they had a mental decline And they had very, very scary hallucinations. You know, very scary. You know, flying monkeys and and giant insects and other things. Very scary things. That's one of the things about Lewy body dementia, which people often have is a scary, scary hallucinations. So uh, when I get the chance to study Parkinson's, if uh, I can get my hands on that, I will look uh, just as I did with these uh, other Lewy body categories. Right now, I haven't gotten a chance to do
0: that. So now let's talk about another really important topic in the Lyme community, Dr. McDonald, which is uh, testing. Testing is a huge issue. And even within the folks in our community, there's a constant debate about whether or not you actually have Lyme disease if you do not test positively. In fact, I recently responded to um, a young woman who commented on one of our social media posts who said, get over it. If you don't test positive, you don't have Lyme disease and you should be looking somewhere else. And and we had an interesting exchange with this woman. So now your research is now demonstrating, specifically your research with uh, sequestration is demonstrating why these tests are not working and why we need to create other types of tests. So Can you share with folks what sequestration is and why that now gives us an understanding of why the traditional two-tier test is failing folks in the Lyme community?
2: Yes. Uh, The antibody uh, that the machine can see, and all of our tests for all intents and purposes are machine readings of serum, uh, need to have enough antibody in the serum for the machine to detect it and produce a color reaction, which gives you a number and then gives you a result. Now, in addition to people who have low antibody levels, real disease, but have low antibody levels because they're on steroids or they're sick, or they have cancer, or they got a very uh, advanced uh, uh, infection, which is suppressed immune system, or they have an immune deficiency born with it, uh, or they're a young uh, pediatric patient, they haven't got their mature system uh, going with the immune system. All of those things can um, terminate in a a blood test, which is flat out negative. And, I started the blood test myself uh, or I, I was early involved in the blood test when it was uh, using whole spirochetes smack dab uh, placed on glass slides. And what we would do is we'd make uh, little rounded areas of uh, deposition of whole spirochetes on glass slides and then take the patient's serum and, and layer the serum over and see if the um, fluorescent marker for bound uh, patient antibody to spirochetes was bright enough to pass through dilutions from one to eight to one to 256 to one 512 and, and higher dilutions. That work was all done with a microscope and a, a single human person, me, looking at the fluorescence of the spirochetes that had bound the antibody and seeing if it's bright enough to see after you dilute it 256 or 512 or 1024 times the higher the dilution that you would see would be the result of a positive test. anything that was less than certain cutoff, usually it was one to 64 early and then we made it one to 128 dilution. If you got past that, then you had a positive test. All right, now we know then that spirochetes, live spirochetes grown in uh, the laboratory and then smacked onto glass slides will bind antibody. That's the that's the way the test is right now. Elisa's use pulverized, uh, you know, vaporized almost proteins, but they don't use whole spirochetes anymore. So you don't you never see the whole spirochetes. The number of um, uh, uh, opportunities for the, the thing to bind are, are much better on a whole spirochete than a little puree of protein in a well. Now, it took me about forty years to figure out that this whole spirochete test, immunofluorescence test, taking out the antibody from the serum applied to it and producing a fluorescent signal could also be going on in the body of people who have living spirochetes still circulating in their blood and in their tissue. Those spirochetes will bind Lyme specific antibodies. Yes, Lyme specific antibodies will bind to whole live spirochetes in people who are chronically infected. So it's not new science. It's rediscovery of old science. And because spirochetes are solid and serum is liquid, when you uh, get your blood ready for testing, you have to clot it and then the tube is centrifuged and there's a little separator and the clot and the fibrin and all of the solid spirochetes will go down to the bottom of the tube and the only thing left at the top is the serum, right? Now, if the spirochetes have already bound all of the antibody in the whole blood, which they're supposed to do, that reduces the amount of antibody left in the serum compartment significantly. That's, tr- that's trouble number one. Trouble number two is that there are biofilms in chronic infection, and biofilms are hundreds of spirochetes living and dead, And you don't have to have a live one anymore. You can just take the protein on the biofilm surface. And that's like a sponge and it pulls antibodies onto its surface. And then the biofilms are also removed in the clot, put to the bottom of the tube and pull all of those antibodies out of the blood so the machine can't see it. And then there's the tissue spirochetes and the tissue biofilms in chronically infected people, which is even huger than the stuff in the blood because tissue outnumbers blood by a certain amount. So all of the sponge removal on solid spirochetes, solid biofilms delivered into the clot, never to be seen by the machine, leaves you with a little area of serum that doesn't have the antibody that was in whole blood. And we don't do whole blood testing, we do serum testing. So you're really out of luck all the antibodies in your in your body wound up in the clot and I can show in whole blood that spirochetes alive in whole blood which are invisible have bound Lyme specific antibody and they glow in the dark and biofilms in whole blood bind Lyme specific antibodies and they glow in the dark and all the stuff that glows in the dark is inaccessible to the machine. No longer in the serum, it's in the solid phase. So our that's, tests are- thats That's pretty scary for all the reference labs, isn't it? All the labs that do all the testing, right? And do all of their quality controls for machine reading Lyme testing should be having uh, some kind of a gastric distress now because they have done <laughs> with a technology, they've perverted a technology which sounds really slick, but is biologically fundamentally flawed because the spirochetes pull the antibody out of the serum, and there's nothing left for the machine to read. Or the antibody is so low that the machine reads a low reading when it's actually all in the clot, attached to the spirochetes, attached to the biofilms, pulled out, or attached to the tissue, never, never even in the blood.
1: But we knew this. And yet we still decided to modernize, quote unquote, and automate. Right. And just put our blinders on to the fact that this is something that's going to take the quality of the test and destroy it because it's cheaper. And it's it's probably something that's worthwhile financially to do and taking the human element out of looking at the whole blood. Is that is that kind of where this is all coming down? You are absolutely spot on. And, you know, the medical industrial complex is going to have me killed
2: for this. I may, be, I may be found in a dumpster somewhere because I've discovered this. And, you know, uh, IGNX is gonna have to go into, uh, you know, laundry uh, uh, and ironing shirts uh, because they're not gonna be able to uh, make their mega millions unless they do a biologically correct test. And the machine
1: test right now is biologically incorrect. So let's expand upon this a little bit further, because how I understand antibodies working with pathogens in general is your immune system will generate an antibody response to a foreign substance. The antibodies will hunt down and target the pathogen. So in this case, the spirochete, and then the antibody will then go in and attack and kill it. But it sounds like what you're saying, Dr. McDonald, is in Lyme disease with spirochetes, the antibody will hunt it down, but instead of killing it, in many cases, just
2: coats the bacteria, and doesn't That's kill it. That's right, it's cloaking it, it's coating it, it's not killing it, unfortunately. And because there's a lots of reasons why the, the killing stage doesn't happen in chronic Lyme disease, but you know, there's something called complement protein. Complement protein is one of the things that punches holes in cells and kills them. You know, if the immune system targets a, a, a bacteria or a bad cell, and it wants to have it killed the complement, proteins come in and they actually punch holes in the cell and, and, and kill it. Spirochetes are known, Borrelia spirochetes are known to be coated with complement proteins.
1: So then the immune
2: system will, will be you know, flying over like a drone and they'll look down and say, well, there's, there's complement, that's not trouble. I'm not going to do anything to that. I'm going I'm to pass it over. You know, And uh, so the immune system is, is deceived by complement coated spirochetes, just like it's deceived by Antibody coated spirochetes. It's deceived. It is blinded because they're cloaked. Yes. Cloaking in, is,
1: is common. And so cloaking is also what we call the sequestering, right? So se- well no
2: sequestering is slightly different, but it's a type of, of sequestering. But yes, it, it is in in, in one fe- one sense. But sequesters are um, you know, the immune complexes of Schutzer and uh, uh, you know he reported those things back where the antigen that's dissolved in the serum uh, binds to the antibody and makes an immune complex. And until that is broken open, you can't detect the antibody anymore because the antibody is already bound to a, a circulating protein in the blood. And the only way you can find it is to bust it open and then you have free unbound Lyme antibody which you can actually measure so it's a little bit of a difference yeah
1: so sequestering actually means that the antibody is doing its job and breaking down the spirochete and killing it but then it's forming into this like this little ball where it's now not being recognized via blood tests is that what that means uh not exactly but you're in the right
2: direction the the antibodies may not be effective in killing for separate reasons than than sequestering uh, you know, in order for the antibody to do its killing, it has to have some help from its you know, friendly neighborhood complement. And if the complement is disabled, then you know, it can't kill anything. It just coats it and it, it, it decorates it like frosting on the cake. And it goes around and instead of killed, it, it's a sponge. And the sponge is pulling the stuff out of serum so that the machine can't see what's in the body, which is on the solid surfaces of the infected particles and biofilms and in the tissue. Sponges have pulled all of that out, and there's nothing in the serum that, you know, unless it's a huge, huge amount, then you miss all the ones that are biologically positive because it's been sponged out of these solid things.
1: But at and some that point, in your immune system—that is
2: diabolical, isn't it? That is that evil. Is yes, that is that is diabolical, isn't it?
1: It is very diabolical. But I mean, at some point, in your immune system has to think, I don't see any more bad stuff. I don't see any more Lyme bacteria because it's coated in in the antibody. So does your immune system eventually stop? mounting an immune response to Lyme disease because Lyme is flourishing and going crazy in your body, but just coated or cloaked in antibodies. So your immune system thinks all is good. You're getting sicker and sicker and sicker because spirochetes are flourishing and they're just coated with antibodies, it sounds like. Is that true or does the immune system never stop pumping no, out the it's antibodies? It's much
2: more complicated than that. Actually, spirochetes are dirty, dirty things. And, and, and during their lifetime, they're continually shedding proteins and stuff from their surface. And that is soluble. That's not solid anymore. It's it's shed from the surface of the spirochete. So if you look at a picture of a spirochete in uh, you know in our a laboratory setting, you'll see that you have the cylinder and then you have a lot of uh, debris uh, dots of uh, shed protein, and those those proteins can do bad things with the antigen antibody reaction. So it's it's not a simple uh, equation.
1: So your body's always pumping out these antibodies for the most part because responding to the shedded spirochete. And that is constantly yeah. being absorbed by the spirochetes yeah. itself
2: to Antibodies it. Antibodies respond to foreign proteins. Gotcha. So they, they don't, well, sometimes they respond to foreign DNA too, but you know, mostly it's foreign proteins. And the foreign proteins are continually shed from living spirochetes into the body system. And so that creates a, a, a fog, an immune fog reaction. And okay. that's that a confusion. Cause, that can cause something where you have more antigen. Then you have antibody, it's called a prozone reaction. And a prozone reaction is one of the basic you know, medical school first year uh, things you have to learn about. It's like antigen excess can produce uh, immune testing negative results unless you dilute enough to get rid of the excess antigen so you can find the antibody. So antigen is like immunology 101, antigen excess prozone. And uh, so prozone is also probably in play in some people who have Lyme false negative uh, testing.
1: But the antigen is the bad stuff, right? So the antigen is the spirochete yeah, a, or, or the shedding the the sh- yeah, part of the spirochete, correct? That's the bad proteins, right? Bad proteins and, are the spirochete. And if that outweighs the antibody response from the immune system, then you're not going to test positive because the antigens outnumber the antibodies, you're saying, correct?
2: Yeah, I mean, what, what, what you hope is that the antigen stuck to the plastic well in your, in your machine, right? That's, that's what it is. It's antigen uh, purposefully attached to the edge of the well, will not be outnumbered by the antigens that are circulating in the blood already. If you're
1: outnumbered, you're outgunned. And if you're outgunned, then you're giving dead, bad data to patients. So in response to the, when we started this conversation, when people are telling us on our social media, if you don't have a positive test for Lyme disease, you don't have Lyme, you're crazy, move on. That's just 1000% inaccurate based on sequestering, based on this cloaking, which we, not, we now know is slightly different, based on this whole theory you just described to us where if the a- antigens outnumber the antibodies, you're not going to test positive for antibodies. And those, those are three scientifically proven reasons why you would not respond positive to a Lyme test, even if you have Lyme disease, Correct
2: exactly and you know there's more than that if you have your immune system is is, is fundamentally weak uh, fundamentally impaired then you can't make it if you have HIV then your immune system's not geared up to do anything much uh, for other for other infections if you're if you're a newborn and your immune system hasn't matured enough you can't make enough antibodies to meet to cut off there's lots of, of, of biological weaknesses that can interfere with getting a positive test. In order to get a positive test, you have to have a healthy, uh, properly functioning immune system. And Lyme disease is notorious for having immune deficiencies just due to the overwhelming effects of the infection alone. You don't have to have HIV. You don't have to have steroids. You don't have to have cancer chemotherapy. But if you have all of those on top of an immune system weakness because of the infection alone, then you're doubly, doubly vulnerable.
1: Right. And so, that's
2: what a lot of people who have chronic uh, situations have. They're doubly vulnerable.
1: So now we have the immune component, where if your immune system isn't functioning well, that's another reason why you wouldn't be generating antibodies. That's a fourth reason, and many of them can be mixed and matched together to result in a false, a false negative test, right? But what, yes. I, I know we need to move. We have so many topics to discuss, and before we move on to our next topic of the liver infections and all that that wild information we've learned from you about even acute Lyme disease, I want to ask one final question on this topic, Dr. McDonald, which is I'm still fascinated and curious why I think a lot of Lyme patients will be, why do some people's bodies, and this is probably a very complex answer, but why do some people's bodies generate antibodies, the antibodies find the Lyme bacteria and actually kill it successfully. Whereas others like chronic Lyme patients, it doesn't kill the spirochete, but it just coats it. And then as a result, they don't get better and they continue to get sicker and sicker and sicker and end up with chronic Lyme disease. What's going on in these bodies? where the antibodies in one case can kill the spirochete and the antibodies in another body cannot kill the spirochete.
2: That's very complicated and that's like a PhD thesis on the immune system and the, and the sides of the immune system that have the cells, the lymphocytes that act, so actually work to kill and the antibody uh, antigen complexes which then work with the macrophages which work with the rest of the immune system to make plasma cells which make antibodies. So it's not that antibodies alone are uh, your pathway to health. You have to have a healthy uh, cellular immune side and then you have to have a a good macrophage, antigens presenting system working for you. And people who have a very healthy immune system uh, have the chance to uh, uh, do a much better clinically than people whose immune system is not up to par I get that's the simplest way of saying it, that uh, not everybody is uh, immunologically equal. And so, you know, one of my tragedies is a, is a child that uh, died at the age of 19 months and uh, he had an overwhelming Lyme infection. And, and his, you know, blood testing was negative, but there was a clue. And that was that the p- pediatrician had given him a, a, an immunization, uh, you know, Previnar, uh, and uh, the immunization didn't take didn't take because his immune system wasn't working right, right? So they gave him a second Previnar immune, uh, you know, uh, inoculation, and that didn't take. And then he comes up with negative Lyme testing. Well, the Lyme testing was negative because the immune system that didn't work for his Prevnar immun- immunization wasn't working for his Lyme infection either. And, uh, you know, it's like, that's basic, basic stuff. It's like, okay, well, if immune system A reaction is flawed because you can't respond to the Uh, uh, vaccination, then everything else that requires the immune system to work may also be flawed.
1: Well, this is a really interesting topic because a a large percentage of the chronic Lyme community is also diagnosed with one or several autoimmune diseases, and myself included, right? I've been, I think now the number is up to three um, suspected autoimmune diseases that I've had that I've been able to overcome most recently with some treatment. But Do you think there's a correlation in people that develop chronic Lyme that have immune issues underlying to begin with? They contract Lyme disease, and then because of their underlying autoimmune issues or or immunity issues or immune system issues, they can't properly rid their bodies of the spirochete by killing it, and instead they just get cloaked by the spirochete. And then that's why so many of us that are chronically ill have immune issues and Lyme disease, chronic Lyme disease as well.
2: I think uh, that a chronic uh, infection scenario screams out that the immune system isn't uh, fully revved up. Uh, and so it's like there are many, many ways that it may be uh, partially crippled or, or totally incapacitated. And we don't need to go through all of those. But there are many opportunities for the immune system to be weakened or to be uh, sort of put out of business. And you can you know knock out the T cell side, you can knock out the the B-cell ant- antibody side, you can knock out the complement side. There's many ways of uh, you know, corrupting a healthy immune system.
0: So Dr. McConnell, before we move on to the next topic, I- I'd like to talk to you about um, Lyme disease and the number of Lyme disease cases increasing. And uh, I recently read a book by General Stanley McChrystal who defined risk formulaically as uh, risk is threat times vulnerability. And we we do know that the threat is increasing for a number of different reasons, but we're coming in more and more contact with ticks. But I'm also wondering whether or not the vulnerability piece uh, of the risk um, analysis of the risk formula is also an issue, you know, just sort of following up on the conversation you were just having with Matt, because um, it appears that we are more and more vulnerable to these, uh, this disease in large part or maybe in part because of immune compromise resulting from a sort of living in this toxic soup. Um, so can you talk to us about uh, whether or not you believe that we are becoming more vulnerable as a result of sort of the lifestyle we've created for ourselves collectively uh, and whether or not that may be the reason why well, one of the important reasons why so many more people are being diagnosed with Lyme disease?
2: Well, we live in a planet that isn't sterile and it isn't pristine clean. And we do have issues of contamination. We have issues of new infections coming and going. We have our COVID uh, you know, sad story with uh, people who do well and people who don't do well. So uh, actually uh, the vulnerability issue is, is very multifactorial. Uh, depends on your lifestyle. Uh, I mean, I don't work out. Um, uh, Rich does. Uh, so he's going to be healthier than I am. So, uh, you know, all these things that work out uh, in different ways is uh, are, are explanations for variability. I think that um, the number of uh, ticks per unit area in various parts of the country seems to be increasing. It seems to be moving. We know it's definitely moving across into Canada. Canada used to have, it as a rare disease, now it's like an epidemic. And all the things that we had in the 80s on Long Island when we were living in Tech Heaven near Shelter Island where the line tick was first uh, described, we were, we were like less than 10 miles from Shelter Island. So we had like uh, ground zero uh, tick um, um, disease because we had a lot of ticks. And um, there, there are more species of uh, the uh, infection. Uh, so Lyme uh, infections, in may have 30 or 40 different uh, subspecies. And uh, we're getting better at, at picking up uh, the ones that are harder to diagnose. The ones that the Mayo Clinic picked up. was a total new animal, wasn't it, out there in uh, Minnesota. Uh, so there's, there's new things coming along all the time. But you know, health and wellness are, are very complicated, and the immune system depends on health for optimal functioning. Uh, but uh, superimposed on that is that the uh, uh, background infection in the community uh, for various things, not just uh, Lyme, but you know, viruses like COVID and other things, can also participate in, in having a, a bad outcome. And then toxicities and things that are. Uh, in the water or in the air that we are exposed to and we don't, we don't really know about, but they they do have an impact. So it's very, very complicated.
0: So on the threat front, you're arguing that, of course, there are more ticks, so we're more likely to come in contact with ticks and we're more likely to come in contact with ticks on a regular basis. But you're also arguing that because the uh, the bacteria itself is changing and we're finding more and more strains of this bacteria that the threat piece of it is increasing. And then on the vulnerability piece, some of it is lifestyle. Some of the, some of the lifestyle um, choices we are making as individuals. Some of it has to do with all of the different chemicals and EMFs and other things our bodies are coming in contact with, but also we're becoming more vulnerable because we're coming in contact with a more diversity of viruses and, 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 and bacteria from other sources that are of course compromising our immune system. So it's really, you know, yes, it's toxic soup, but not all of it our own making or not directly our own making because we have, we're coming in contact with all kinds of other um, uh, biological agents that are natural that are also becoming immunocompromising or causing us to becoming more immunocompromised and therefore more vulnerable to the, to the threat. Yeah, no, we're going to hit
2: uh, liver, we're going to hit chronic lymphocytic leukemia, we're going to hit glioblastoma, and we're going to hit suicide as, as horrendous situations for patients who, you know, have those, all of those in common have the double infection common link. So years yeah. ago, we had one uh, which was Lyme Borrelia burgdorferi to worry about. Now we have Lyme miyamotoi and Borrelia burgdorferi and all of the next four cases are gonna be examples of people who got double infected with miyamotoi and with burgdorferi. The double infection led to uh, more severe and more significant disease than possibly a single infection might do. All
0: right, so let's let's pause there for a second because one of the things that we quote you about all the time, uh, and you probably don't know how much you influence me and Matt, but we literally quote you probably every week on this podcast. If you didn't know that. Uh, and and one of my favorite one of my favorite uh, McDonaldisms, if I could if I could use that term, is uh, is the divorce from the word Lyme, right? I mean, yes. you had argued very powerfully in an article you had written for Lymedisease.org, which is is again I, I think one of the again most brilliant pieces you've written, quite frankly, is that we need to divorce ourselves from the word. Lyme disease, because Lyme yeah. disease is essentially a disease without a definition, because it's so many different things. So you right. were you were one of the earliest people back in the '80s, in the early '80s, that recognized that that Lyme disease really is a polymicrobial disease that has. You know yes. a number of different permutations, and by using yes. the sort of single term line, we're putting ourselves into a box where we have a disease right. without a definition, right? So let's yes. let's let's discuss that in a little bit more detail because now you're starting to show the brilliance of your observation about the need to be divorced from the word uh, Lyme disease because the next four topics we're going to talk about are all really polymicrobial diseases, but in this case, we've been identified two different strains of the same bacteria, which when they come together, create substantially more havoc in our body, and make us more likely to become very sick than if we just had this one bacteria right so yeah. Let, let, let's let's talk about let's talk about the liver in, in in this context because i think you made a you know a really powerful transition for us thank you for doing that it makes my job easier um so so the liver the liver issue um is a big one here in in uh in the lyme community and something we see all the time on our social media and we talk about all the time the importance of the liver and the and the role the liver plays in detoxification and how you know again and you, and you just talked about how important that was in the brain but of course everywhere so let's first talk about the liver and what the function of the liver is, and then I'd like to take you to a second step and talk about how important it is to have a healthy liver so that we can go through the process of killing and detoxifying.
2: Yeah, the mission statement for the liver uh, is uh, that it uh, purifies um, the blood. It uh, regulates uh, levels of important uh, chemicals in the blood, like you know cholesterol and lipids. Uh, it, uh, so it has a filtration function. Uh, it has an immune function. Uh, there's special immune cells in the liver, which are not found anywhere else uh, in the body. Uh, and overall, uh, liver health is very important to total body health. Um, the um, early uh, cases of um, doing you know, uh, blood testing in Lyme uh, had a bunch of patients with early Lyme disease who had liver functions that were whacked.
0: Okay, so now no, this, they this is acute Lyme disease, right? People this was acute, yeah,
2: it was acute. And it never got whacked enough that they got a liver biopsy because it was up a little bit and then the enzymes were up there for a while and then it came down. But there was definitely a, a group of people who had very early disease, like when you had your erythema migraine, skin lesion, very, that, that early. And at the time, uh, blood testing would show some liver abnormalities, not major, but problems. So at that time, even then, the bug that got into the skin didn't stay in the skin. It was in the bloodstream and it got to the liver and it got to the brain and some you know, considerable number of patients and the liver healed itself. So that's, uh, that's important. Now, people who have chronic uh, situations can have more chronic issues in various organs. Liver is one of them, spleen is another Brain is another, eye is another. So chronic, it can set up in various sites and they don't all have to be the same for everybody. So it gets very complicated. Chronic isn't complicated. But the other thing I want to pound into into, uh, everybody's brain is that chronic equals biofilm. You can't have chronic without biofilm. Biofilm and chronic are as important as uh, peanut butter and jelly. You can't have a chronic infection without having biofilms. They may be in the blood, they may be in tissue, they may be both. And biofilms are very, very resistant to antibiotic treatment, very stubborn. They're designed for survival of the, the bug inside the biofilm. And the biofilm complicates the biology of everything exponentially. And there's a great reluctance to deal with it cognitively I mean uh, the Lyme community is sometimes not really biofilm aware but biofilms and chronic disease go hand in hand let's get to something there does that help you a little bit or it's brilliant
0: it's absolutely brilliant. We're, gonna, gonna, we're gonna spend some time talk, some more time talking about it, but let's stay with the liver for another second and then then we can we can move on for that so now if you are if you're um, a patient, and you have, uh, you have um, acute symptoms, uh, you, have a, um, you have a bullseye rash. Um, right. Would you think it would be wise of a patient to demand that they have uh, blood tests testing their liver function as a further step in the process of determining what appropriate treatment would be necessary?
2: Yeah, I think that that would be a first
0: step because
2: remember you're, you're treating the whole patient. You're not treating just the patient's skin and the red spot, you're treating the whole patient. And a lot of these liver function abnormalities, these whacked low level whacking of liver function were kind of accidentally discovered. You know, you had your blood test for your hemoglobin and you got your regular chemistries and you had your Lyme disease at the same time that those tests were being drawn and you found up a couple of liver things up or maybe a few more, but not seriously. So yeah, and what that does is it also cements into the brain of the physician that it is uh, from the start, a systemic disease that every, once the tick penetrates the skin and once it gets the spirochetes into the skin, then that is a uh, expressway, 12 lane expressway to all the other sites that provided by the blood and where it may land up is unknown whether it lands up at any of the other sites is unknown but at least has a chance at every part of your body
0: right all right so now let's let's talk about you know you you and matt earlier were talking about how scary it is that this this um this bacteria is so smart and it's so diabolical um do you believe that the reason why we're seeing elevated um levels in um in liver testing is because the bacteria is intelligently attacking the liver so that the detox function of the liver is is impaired and therefore uh, the toxic levels of, of, of the blood increase and- um,
2: Toxic everything. I mean, you know, it doesn't selectively
0: pick out, oh,
2: I'm going to just deal with this toxin or that toxin. You know, if it's screwing up the filtration function, then everything is at risk, right? Wow.
0: And then the, immune fun- then, the, then the immune system is, of course, overwhelmed because there's so much toxicity, not just of that m- bacteria, but everything.
2: And the liver has its own immune system that's different from the system that's in the spleen. The different cells in the liver are different from the ones in on the spleen. The spleen's another immune engine, right? And so the spleen can also get... And the spleen is also a filter, by the way. All the Babesia organisms in the world are taken out by the spleen, not the liver, right? So let's give the spleen a little uh, applause, too. Uh, so remember, we have a, you know, a cooperative system and we're not treating just a skin lesion or tick bite.
1: Dr. McDonald, I just want to point out again, I know you and Rich touched on this, but in, uh, in this study done through Yale University, who you did some work for with this uh, particular information and research you sent over to us, 19% of people with acute early Lyme disease had liver issues as a result of Lyme disease, correct?
2: That was early on. Early, early, on. early on. Early on. And then some of them become more chronic more severe but not everybody gets disease that's bad enough to get a liver biopsy right you know you have to have pretty really major chemistry and major symptoms uh, in order to get a liver biopsy so all of the things that are going on in the liver are underneath the radar because we don't biopsy the liver in healthy or mild liver abnormality patients you know we don't biopsy it so we don't know what's going on
1: Understood. And, and I think a big part of this though, is as Richard said, that people that are having liver issues when they start to treat Lyme disease, they become toxic, right? So this is, I think a precursor. So Lyme is damaging the liver. Again, it's so smart. And then all of a sudden you start to kill off bacteria. You need your liver to, to function properly and you become toxic and it creates all these issues. But I do want to focus on, you know, some of these terms here, right? Because we've heard about terms like hepatitis, liver infection, liver inflammation. I think one of them that we, you referenced is granulomatous hepatitis, right? Can you explain to us what does this actually mean that we're finding spirochetes in the liver in these granulomas, right? Which, what are they? They're just, are they just, these are like balls of, of like blobs in the liver that are are inflamed because of having spirochetes there. If you could give us some details to exactly what you're seeing in the biopsy livers, the ones that you were studying and the ones that were done through this research at Yale.
2: Okay. Well, a granuloma is a collection of cells that may include the, uh, Host uh, white blood cells, the host macro, macrophages, giant cells that are there to uh, uh, eat uh, infection. So, granulomas are, are the uh, cells of the body trying to eat the infection, trying to contain it, trying to hold it in an area which is, is becomes a, a round ball. Um, so, that's a cellular sort of a round thing, and it's a special kind of inflammation. It usually uh, well, it almost always in, 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 in indicates an intracellular infection. So they can have infections where the bugs live outside the cells, and infection where this, by, uh, the cells get infected on the internal side and the in, bugs are in, inside. And so granulomas are indicating uh, intracellular infection. But hepatitis so they- is, that, that has uh, some. Lyme connection, uh, we, we reported one case where the granuloma pattern was there in the patient, and the patient was treated, and the patient did well. That patient, however, had been called, quote, an autoimmune patient. And because autoimmune patients and liver disease I mean you get your name put on a transplant list, right, for liver transplant, because that's what autoimmune liver de- disease winds up with. You get, uh, you know, a, a slot on the uh, transplant list. In fact, the patient had infection and had a disease which, although there was no other explanation, they said, well, it's got to be autoimmune then, you know, autoimmune liver. It's bad liver. We you know what the disease is. Let's call it autoimmune. Let's put her on the transplant list. See how the sloppiness of
1: thinking gets out of, out of control? But now what's wild about that is if, if that patient were to get a transplant, you know, oh, yeah. the liver, what, it would have come back, right? Possibly, because yeah, the we, uh, we
2: Right, we, we don't have to go there either. But we don't want to unnecessarily transplant people for
1: quote-unquote autoimmune disease, which is actually infection. We don't want to do that. That's, and, that's and a no-no. If, but the work that you're doing and the work that Yale's doing is finding that these liver issues, the liver inflammation, these, these nodules in the liver, right? The granulomas, et cetera, you're finding Lyme disease in, in the liver. And not only are you find, finding Borrelia burgdorferi, but as you told Rich earlier, you're finding Borrelia burgdorferi and Borrelia, I think, Miyamotai in many cases as being the driving force together to create the liver issues, is that correct?
2: Yeah, no, these are creating severe liver issues. And that's a very small fraction. The total number of liver Lyme things that have been nailed down with, with research reports is under 10 in the world's literature. So there'll be people who will never see a Lyme liver patient in their entire practice, because it's right now, fortunately, a rare situation. And the infection uh, interferes with a proper metabolic and chemical and, you know, physiological function of the liver so that the enzymes of injury related to liver injury go up in the blood. And they go up to a high enough level that they're, they're called a, a high abnormal, you know, result. That's, that's Lyme, hepatitis, uh, infection causing chemical disturbances in the liver. And fortunately right now it's a relatively rare condition, but it's a model for what's going on in people who have lesser degrees of inflammation and lesser degrees of infection, who don't get up to that high, high level of abnormality in their liver testing results. So, so there's a spectrum. You can have a, a mild thing. You can have a moderate thing. You can have something that goes from um, abnormal back to normal because you recover. Then it can re- re- regress or, or return. It can relapse. And Lyme is fundamentally a relapsing infection. We know that. You know, you get, get better and then you kind uh, of have a relapse or get reinfected. So that, that's, that, that's the, one of the liver issues. Uh, liver is an important organ for health.
1: Okay, so you... Obviously, this is a rare disease as far as being diagnosed. So far. So far, but as you had indicated, Dr. McDonald, many people may not have the levels high enough when they were tested at that time because this is a relapsing disease, right? And also I can't help but wonder how many people have elevated liver levels when they get their blood work done and have have it dismissed or misdiagnosed or misattributed to something else when really it's it's connected to Lyme. Yeah, I think that number is a significant number But if it doesn't get up to a very
2: high abnormality, a high number in the blood of abnormality, they won't biopsy the liver and find out what's going on. If you don't biopsy the liver, you'll never know what's causing the liver injury. You know, it's like in church, you take a collection and you do a collection plate, right? In diagnosis, you do a biopsy to find out what's going on. You want to find out what's going on in an organ which is disturbed, you do a biopsy of the organ and they have a better chance of figuring out what's
1: going on. And many people with liver issues don't get a liver biopsy unless they're severe cases like you just said with high levels, That's right Absolutely. So again, it just makes me wonder in this discussion because we know how systemic and debilitating Lyme can be, how many people are, have an underlying Lyme disease and you know different strains, Borrelia miyamotoi, Borrelia burgdorferi, right. contributing, and they're just waxing and waning their whole lives because they're they're g- getting a little bit better, getting a little bit worse, and they never get to the root cause of what's going on. So I think this is another topic, Dr. McDonald, that down the road we're going to be realizing. Up, oh, Dr. McDonald warned us about this, and here you know we're starting to learn more about about the real things that are going on. So is this is this a reason why somebody gets somebody gets bit by a tick, right? And and they maybe you're mildly symptomatic or they're a sensitive person, that the use of antibiotics is really really an important thing at the acute level because you don't want to get it systemic into your liver. You don't want it to get systemic into your tissue. And by treating at the acute level after a tick bite is probably worth it, even though there may be some negative side effects compared to what the damage can be if you get disseminated Lyme disease.
2: Yeah, here's a little sidebar. Uh, There was an antibiotic that was popular when my wife had her treatment with uh, Joe Burriscano, it was called Keytech. And uh, Keytech, uh, early out out of the box, was looking very good uh, for treating people who have chronic Lyme disease. And uh, over time, uh, it was uh, taken off the market because it was considered dangerous in Lyme disease. Why was it dangerous? because the liver got whacked.
1: Mm.
2: Now, can we do the math? Can we collect, connect the dots? Maybe the liver got whacked because there was disease in the liver that needed to be dealt with and the key tech was de- dealing with it and the key tech wasn't fundamentally toxic, but doing its job. And therefore the enzymes, which had to go up and go down, you know, represented occult Lyme in liver, occult Lyme hepatitis. Which uh, was perceived to be "quote unquote" toxic key text. Remember, we've had toxic amyloid, right? Yep. We've had toxic alpha synuclein, right? And now we're realizing that those were maybe, incorrect. maybe not, maybe, maybe not. But going back and learning with 2020 hindsight, if we didn't do the liver biopsy, we wouldn't know what's going on. You know, right now, the only thing that they do is look what's in the blood and say what the enzymes are and say, oh, well, there's trouble in the liver. And we, you know, we don't feel brave enough to biopsy the liver and find out what's going on. I think there's a point now where you're going to have to be uh, ready to biopsy the liver in people who have persistent abnormal liver enzymes to see what's going on. Is it Lyme in the liver? Do we have more than 10 cases on planet Earth? Oh, no doubt. Of Of course. course we do. But how many have gotten through the publication and, and peer review and all that? How many have actually had a biopsy? Right? Very, 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 very small. And the liver is an organ of health. You've got to have a healthy
1: liver to recover. So let's get some biopsies going here. So I, I want to jump from the, the acute to the chronic, right? Yeah, because right. in the literature you sent over from Yale that you worked with there was a case of hepatitis associated with chronic borrelia burgdorferi infection and you know this this was a case report from 2014 and essentially i believe what this is saying is that there was there was hepatitis or liver inflammation that was related to a lyme infection but after a course of antibiotics the lyme bacteria persisted and the liver and the liver inflammation persisted as well is that correct am i interpreting this study correctly yeah, you know, I, I I know I sent you the studies, but I don't have. I sent. I sent you
2: maybe six or seven studies, so I'm not exactly sure. But I would defer to what's written and not to my memory about the details, because I've been, you know, doing a lot of other things, and so I can't tell you for sure. The details of that one case.
1: I can just read you the quick snippet. It says, we present the case of a 53-year-old woman diagnosed with a Lyme diagnosis who developed acute hepatitis with elevated liver enzymes while on antibiotic treatment. Histological Ah. examination of the liver biopsy tissue revealed spirochetes dispersed throughout the hepatic parenchyma, probably mispronouncing it. Parenchyma, that's right. Parenchyma. And the spirochetes were identified as Borrelia burgdorferi by molecular testing with specific DNA probes. Modal spirochetes were also isolated from the patient's blood culture. So not only in, not only in the patient's liver, but in their blood. Yeah. And the isolate was identified as Brilliant Borg-Durfori sensu stricto uh, by two independent laboratories using molecular technology. So two independent labs diagnosed Lyme at the blood and the Beautiful. liver biopsy confirmed Lyme in the, in the liver. These findings indicated that the patient had active systemic Borrelia burgdorferi infection and consequent Lyme hepatitis despite antibiotic therapy is what this yes. study showed. But I think that's powerful. Yes. I think that's, that's an important study to, to focus on. So can you talk a little yeah. bit about that, Dr. McDonald?
2: Well, I, th- th- that may be the case where they had a nice uh, picture, a yellow picture of the spirochetes in the liver. They had yes. it, it had uh, not just a few spirochetes, it had wall to wall spirochetes. You look at the picture and there's, there's no spaces between the spirochetes. I mean, they're all almost shaking hands with each other, they're so close. So yes, that, that was a, a situation where uh, they had over over the top done the molecular proof to say, yes, it is absolutely, uh, thus the burgdorferi strain. And it, it is, uh, there's no doubt that it's some other spirochete. You know, one of the other spirochetes that can, uh, can cause trouble is uh, the leptospirosis. Uh, infection. And that one can do terrible things to the liver too. Uh, So you can have acute yellow atrophy with leptospirosis and fatalities in a condition called Weil's disease. Uh, It's a leptospirosis in the liver. Syphilis could get into the liver and cause terrible things to happen too. So it's not just Lyme disease is the bad kid on the block. All spirochetes can do terrible things in the liver. And you have to be aware of it and you have to uh, firm it up with a biopsy because you can't with blood testing, tell whether the spirochetes are just in the blood or in the blood and the liver. You can't tell, and if it's in the liver, you want to treat them appropriately, because when it's in the liver, it's there big time. It's not there one spirochete here, one spirochete there. It's 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 big big time, and it's a perfect thing because the spirochetes need you know fatty things, and the liver is the you know the gatekeeper for fatty things to keep keep things going. So liver extract has actually been used in some culture medium to enhance the reliability of growing spirochetes from blood uh, in some cases. So, you know, liver, liver is uh, important.
1: But I think this study also proves that the, it persists, right? Cause it, there's this yes, term out there that Lyme persists, right? Persistent right. Lyme or chronic Lyme disease. Hey, I treat with antibiotics, but I'm still sick, which we know to be right. true. But right. This, this study out of Yale that you've, you, you know, you've worked on, is definitively proving not only that chronic Lyme exists in the blood, but you know with two independent labs, but also chronic Lyme exists in the liver. Correct?
2: Yes, big time. When it when it gets to be you know ensconced, you know entrenched, dug in right in the liver. Uh, yeah, you're not going to have one here, one there. You're going to have many, many spirochetes in the cases that we've seen so far. It's a
1: high infectious burden in liver situation. And not to get too technical with the forms, but this has always fascinated Rich and I. And in your all of your photos and in your, your research studies with the liver biopsies and even the, the blood lymphocytes, which you are going to get to next, you talk about different forms of the Lyme bacteria that you're finding in your, you know, your in the laboratory environment in using your fish testing. So you talk about the whole the whole spirochete having a granular form, a cystic form, a biofilm form, and I believe also like a straightened form. And, you know, can you just explain to us what these different forms are? Because, you know, we've heard that the Lyme disease bacteria can, you know, ship where it can, it can evade the immune system and evade the antibodies by going from a spirochete to, you know, something benign. But if you can just give us, you know, some high level overviews of the various forms Lyme disease can take, and which forms you believe are probably the most dangerous to make us sick. Okay.
2: Well, um, I was the first to put the cystic form of Lyme disease on the map. I did that uh, by discovering a cystic form in an Alzheimer brain. And uh, so the cystic form is uh, uh, round uh, and it is um, uh, sort of like a mechanics ruler where, you know, you, you have a an area where the ruler is coiled up, and then you pull the ruler out, and you can see the, the, the measurement. Uh, and then you uh, roll it back into the uh, container, and the uh, spirochete—not uh, the spiro—the ruler is coiled up inside. It, it's kind of like that. Where like the, a me-
1: like a measuring tape. A measuring tape,
2: right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, like a me- me- uh, mechanics uh, or um, uh, carpenter's tape. So uh, when the spirochete uh, is in a hostile environment, uh, it will uh, go round on you. Uh, sometimes and become a round body. And then after it's uh, returned to a healthy environment, it can uh, uncoil and become spiral again. Some spirochetes are not coiled, but they're still real and they're not coiled because they lack the flagellin and they've got a mutation, but they're still capable of causing trouble. Some spirochetes actually break up into little pieces so that if you take and, and mince the spirochete along its long axis and make these little tiny little pieces of mincemeat out of the spirochete, each one of those has uh, a chromosome. And the whole chromosome copy number in spirochetes can uh, go from 16 whole chromosomes to 50 in long spirochetes. Each chromosome can reproduce an entire long spirochete.
1: So a fragment of the spirochete can, can regenerate into a full spirochete.
2: Yes, and, and uh, so it's like a biological multiplier because if you kill off the cylinder and you release chromosomes, 16 copies, then you'll get 16 uh, regenerations of spirochetes. So it's a, the, 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 it's a biological multiplier. The so you kill one
1: spirochete are, thinking you're doing good with and it antibiotics goes, it, and then it creates 16. It goes granular on you, right. Or it goes
2: cystic on you and granular. And then all of those can, can continue. So it's a way of getting past killing because you can't kill the granules. So I'm One sorry, way,
1: the yeah. cystic is if, if the if the spirochete in a hostile environment, it'll stay alive. It'll go into the cystic around form and then go back into a spirochete when it's safe again for the spirochete. Yeah. But yeah. the granular is when the spirochete breaks apart and the spirochete right. breaks down into little mini pieces. And then That's each me. mini piece can essentially create its own, its own spirochete again. Miss now, right. yeah. is that, that's, that's different than remnants because remnants of Lyme disease uh, is generally dead, right? Or am I mistaken? That's right. I'm yeah. Mistaken? Those okay. are dead, but, but Two the granules things.
2: are actually living. Wow. Uh, so, so that's, that's scary too, because, you know, uh, they are, uh, they, they have the, the whole chromosome. Uh, they've got a wrapper around it that protects it. And so the granules are uh, there to regenerate. And the granules can sprout little tails and then the tail gets longer and longer, it becomes a spiral thing again. So yeah, that's another life form. So There's many different ways it can, it can survive assault and persist. We could, we could do two hours on that, just the, the morphological the, you know, differences because I haven't gotten into cell wall deficient forms or uh, the other forms that are out there, the, the ring forms and the other things. So I don't want to uh, carpet bomb your listeners with too much data.
1: Well, while, while we're still on the liver topic, I mean, obviously, you were brought in to consult with Yale, and they they had a ton of supporting studies. So I know there was, I think, like nine or ten studies that you provided us with as backup in addition to the work that you did. So, right. is there any traction there? I mean, is are you doing anything moving forward with, with with the study of livers and Lyme disease? Is Yale pursuing anything? Are you aware of anything going on out there in the world that's going to help advance what you've already done in this arena? Uh, the
2: the the Yale. Uh... School of Medicine does not have a um, single uh, faculty member who is studying uh, Lyme disease in the liver as a uh, focus of research. That's ironic because Yale uh, put Lyme disease on the map with Alan Steer at Yale. Uh, Alan Steer went to uh, Mass General and uh, his pathologist, Paul DeRay, uh, left Yale and went to other places. So after those two people left, there was uh, no interest in Lyme liver pathology at Yale. To this day, there is no interest in Lyme liver pathology at Yale. That paper that f- came from the past was, was when they had somebody there who was interested, but that person is no longer there.
0: All right, Dr. McFadden, let's take the next step uh, and transition over to leukemia. Um, oh boy, is, here we go. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is something that uh, that is uh, regularly discussed in the Lyme community and um and i think it's important that you you've given given us some insight here and of course we do want to give everyone the caveat that you know that uh you know, this is not something that's going to happen to you this is not something that's necessarily going to happen to you this is just something that we're now seeing in this disease that has been uh has been defined as the great imitator this is another form of imitation and in many cases people are being diagnosed with um you know with leukemia and a form of cancer that either is triggered by Lyme or is really just Lyme shape-shifting and creating some other issues? So why don't you talk with us about your findings on, on, uh, on CLL? All right,
2: well, the uh, lymphocyte is a uh, part of the immune response and a healthy lymphocyte when exposed to live uh, Borrelia bacteria will divide and go into what they call a blastic transformation. And the number of uh, lymphocytes will get um, increase in number and the lymphocytes will get bigger in size and it will be switched on metabolically. And you have the the T-cell lymphocytes or the cellular immune part, and then you have the B-cell lymphocytes. And all of those things are then stimulated by exposure to live Borrelia spirochetes. Now, as of this point, uh, there have been peer-reviewed papers uh, published, which describe uh, in, in Italy and in Europe, lymphomas, which are actually lymphocyte proliferations inside of lymph nodes or solid tissue. Lymphomas are not leukemia, but well, lymphomas lymphoma- may have a leukemic phase. Is lymphoma
1: right? cancer, Dr. McDonald? I just yes, want
2: to be make- okay. it is. a blood cancer. It's a it's a cancer where the lymph nodes get enlarged and and the uh, lymphocytes uh, make cause tumor-like accumulations in skin and other organs. So they found in uh, Italy that uh, there's a good connection, a durable and uh, robust connection between people who have uh, certain lymphocytic lymphomas, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, and Lyme infection in Italy. And so they've, they've drawn a connection between those two things. Uh, there are also papers which describe people who have chronic lymphocytic leukemia in this country and in Europe who also have Lyme disease infection and they can't decide which came first, the chicken or the egg and whether Uh, the leukemia would be there uh, as an incidental rather than a a related thing, because the immune system in leukemic uh, patients is going to be suppressed. And so you get an infection in a suppressed patient, just like you get an infection in an HIV patient, Lyme infection in a steroid patient, a Lyme infection in any, any other cancer patient. So just because you have the two things going on in the same body doesn't mean that they're connected by cause and effect, right? But the uh, certain types of, of, of leukemia will uh, sprout out of solid lymphoma cases. So you can have a lymphoma that starts out as a solid tissue thing and then uh, evolves so that the cells get into the blood and they have a leukemic phase. And chronic lymphocytic leukemia is one of those categories where you have, uh, as the stages of the disease develop, you can have uh, gradual, small, uh, increase in the number of uh, lymphocytes in the blood that doesn't reach the threshold for calling it chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And then over time, it gets a higher and higher number and eventually it crosses the threshold and becomes numerically sufficient high enough count in the blood to say, okay, uh, you know, 50,000 lymphocytes in the blood is, is leukemic, you know, 10,000 lymphocytes in the blood is not leukemic. So uh, you have to reach a certain n- number threshold. Um, I was uh, lucky to receive uh, blood from a patient who uh, six years, in 2016, wanted to have me run my tests on her blood. He said, oh, I like what your research I'm gonna send you some of my blood. So I, I, <laughs> I got it, I put it away. And uh, then I came back to it uh, recently and I, I looked in it. I found that uh, uh, the blood is loaded with spirochetes. And uh, I said, ooh, well, that, that's very, very interesting. And uh, what else is going on? She said, well, back, back in 2016, I was okay. But about three years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And the, that, it happened that I had lymph nodes in my armpit and there's a breast cancer risk in my family. So I figured, oh, i will get it biopsied, see if it's breast cancer, God forbid. And they biopsied it and they found out that it was a lymphocytic Lymphoma, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and then so she was then diagnosed three years into the you know 2019 as chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and she's doing okay. She's smoldering along. She's not in any kind of danger, and you know I hope that uh, she'll do what many patients do with chronic lymphocytic leukemia and go for ten years with no problem. It's just have a high lymphocyte count in the blood, but because it was Lyme disease uh, in her blood. And now it evolved from no leukemia to lymphocytic leukemia. And because the Italians had described Lyme disease causing lymphocytic lymphoma, I said, I'm going to take a look at, I'm going to take a whack at this and see if there's anything I can find in the blood that connects Lyme disease, spirochetes, with her chronic lymphocytic leukemia cells. And I hit pay dirt. Oh my, did I hit pay dirt. And uh, so with my DNA probes and my other uh, testing, I found that the uh, cells in her blood are, uh, that contain um, inside the cell Lyme disease infection, Lyme disease inside the leukemic cells. That's a first in the world. And that's going to get me into big trouble with the leukemia and lymphoma people too, because, you know, that I wasn't supposed to find that. But I did find it. So that's where we are with that case. I have sent you pictures, and you have the you know the handout which you can provide the listeners, which will show the people what the Lyme disease spirochetes look like as they wrap around the lymphocyte and surround it like a you know, like a bracelet or like a corset, and then they they work their way inside. The lymphocyte and they get inside the nucleus. And then you can see the spirochetes inside the nucleus of the leukemic cells. So it's doing the same thing it does with other places. You know, it gets a foothold and then it wheedles its way into the inner part of the cell. And then it wheedles in its way in, into the nucleus. And that's a first in the world. And it's pretty straightforward. There's nothing, I know, wishy-washy about this.
1: This is like dramatic. This is dramatic. So I I want to just kind of break this down, right? So the Europeans in the past have identified a connection between Lyme disease and skin cancer, because that, I think you call this uh, lymphoma in the skin. Lymphoma, right, which is essentially skin cancer, correct, or no? It's actually a lymphoma on the skin, just to make sure that
2: we focus on the lymphocytes rather than the epidermis and the red spot, you know, you can have lymphoma of the skin and have some red, but it won't look like erythema migrans. It's it's usually a, a, an area which is a bump. A it's bump. just all a, a piling up of lymphocytes in the skin, which is like a tumor. And the lymphocytes so tumor, are, just like a, are white blood cells. So it's it's a, it's they're white. lymphocytes. Yeah, they're not they're, uh, all uh, 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 cells in the blood can be called if they have a nucleus could be called white blood cells. You have the neutrophils. Those are the acute inflammation. These are the immune cells. These are lymphocytes. They're small, round lymphocytes
1: with skimpy amounts of cytoplasm. They're the immune cells in the blood. Gotcha, so the immune cells are the ones that glob up and form the lump on the skin with the Europeans, correct? Yes. Okay, so this was, and now is this, was this dangerous? Was this just an inconvenience with like a, a lump on the skin? Is this cancerous? What's the health risk that, the, that these people experience with the European it, it, model in the European studies?
2: It, it uh, is by definition, because they call it lymphoma of the skin, it's a cancer of lymphocytes in the skin. Now, in Europe, there's a fascinating condition called Borrelial lymphocytoma, which is related to Lyme disease infection in the skin, where you get bumps in the skin and you get lots and lots of lymphocytes in the skin, and they have you know lymphocyte proliferation in the skin, but it's benign. It's just related to the infection. So you could look at it as the first stage between infection to lymphocyte immune system making a lump in the skin, which is benign, to lymphocytes in the skin, which now become cancerous. So it's a beautiful progression, Borrelia lymphocytoma to uh, Borrelia lymphoma in Italy in the skin. It's like, ooh, and that's all due to that spirochete in the skin. It's stimulating the cellular side of the immune response, not the antibody side so much, but the cellular side. The lymphocytes themselves are dividing, 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 and getting active and they're making a lump, and that's a tumor, and the tumor can be benign, but rarely a lymphocytoma, or it can progress to become a malignant situation. And when it gets into a stage where it starts releasing the cells into the blood, it becomes leukemic lymphoma. You have lymphoma without leukemia or lymphoma with leukemic release of cells into blood, and that's how you get
1: to chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So this is truly diabolic. Again, this is something it that- diabolical. Yes, it is diabolical. So, wow. So it's, it's really a progressive disease and it can it can start off and then progress all the way through to leukemia and, and aggressive cancer, depending on how far it goes in that case. Now, what you did is slightly different because what that was what the European studies did. You were studying something different. This chronic lymphocytic leukemia that you were studying, talk to us about how that was different than the European studies. I want to make sure we understand how you built upon that but in a different way based on the European research. Well, I talk
2: about you know uh, infection in skin to benign lump, to malignant lump, and then the lump in the skin, which is the cancer releases cells into the blood and becomes leukemic, right? Oh, I so you brought the, the final
1: step. You found the final jumped, piece I just of the puzzle. To the
2: high, I just jumped to the final step and say, okay, I'll work backwards. Let me, go, let me go backwards from leukemic cells in blood of lymphocyte, immune type, and work backwards to the infection. Understood. Instead of going forward, I work backwards.
1: So you're the one who made the chronic lymphocytic leukemia, the cancer, the, the the everything being released out into the blood. That's the connection you made from yeah. the beginning with the European startup. But you, you finished the work the Europeans couldn't finish basically.
2: Well, I don't know. Somebody's gonna finish me off with all this. I'm gonna be found in a <laughs> dumpster somewhere. Yeah, that's I'll true. say,
1: you don't have to say. You finished off their work and you, you you brought it full circle. I mean, just to show how severe this disease can be. So, and this was coincidental. A patient that you were just yes. working with had crazy spirochetes. And then you found this, this CLL connection and then you were able to you know work backwards and Identify that the and this is the crazy part and again I want to tell our listeners that we're going to put the reference documents you put together this this beautiful presentation Dr. McDonald thank you for that we're going to link to that in our show notes so our listeners can go and open that link in our show notes of this podcast and view everything you put together for them because that really that really is extremely powerful to see the spirochetes invading the lymphocytes right and and how that process happens and if they invade the lymphocytes that's the beginning of the end essentially you you discovered the end piece is what we're saying here right
2: yeah I mean it's uh, the DNA probes have come to my rescue so many times, and without my DNA probes, I would not have anything to talk about. but with the DNA probes that I have for both Miyamotoi and for Bergdorferi, and remember this this leukemic patient has double header. she's got Miyamotoi and Bergdorferi. It sets her apart from Lyme patients, brilliant patients who only have one Type of infection. So let's not get people jumping out of windows because they've got Lyme disease and they're going to worry about leukemia. You may have to double infection in another set of circumstances, which move you from reactive, you know, benign to leukemia. I don't want everybody to get,
1: you know, crazy about this. Not everybody will get to the end result. It's it's a certain set of circumstances. Not not everybody gets everything, right? And also, if you start to treat, your condition now, you can prevent it from escalating as well, correct? So if you yes, start to address exactly. it and treat, you can prevent the evolution or progression of of whatever's exactly. going on in your body, right? Ex- exactly. That's like early diagnosis,
2: early treatment, good result.
1: And I think the same is true of everything we're discussing, even when it comes yes. to the Lewy body dementia. And, right. and correct me if I'm wrong, but if if somebody were to get accurate treatment and to start to address the spirochetes and address you know the biofilm and address you know everything in their brain, it could stop the progression of the dementia but it can't yes. reverse it, the nerve, the nerve death that you described. Right.
2: And remember normal people who don't have infection will lose a certain number of nerve cells every day, particularly if they go on a vendor. Right. right? <laughs> so, you know, loss of nerve cells is part of life, but Right. with the accelerated extra part of the infection, then it puts you at a disadvantage because in, in addition to what you're normally going to lose, the infection adds additional nerve cell loss. And that puts you into, you know, Great, great
1: zone. And I think though, so Borrelia Miyamoto is becoming more and more common. And I think, you know, yes. you said earlier, Borrelia miyamotia is coming into its own, meaning it's starting to evolve, it's starting to grow. It is. So it unfortunately, is. these cases are going to become more and more prominent over time. And yes. they're probably, you know, much larger today than we think they are because we're not doing proper tests or studies and yes. nobody really has any of this information that you're sharing with us today on this podcast. So I think that's an important note too to, to share. Yes. So when... When, with, with this combination, right, of miamulti and Borgdorferi, why do you think that drives it so much harder and makes it so much, you know, makes it so much more likely that you're going to progress to get the full-on cancer that you described? And, you know, in many cases, if you just have Borgdorferi, maybe it won't progress that that badly in that case.
2: That's a million-dollar question. I don't know. Uh, I guess uh, right now it's an observation. That's all I can say. But I'm seeing it in different settings clinically. I'm seeing it in the liver. I'm seeing it in the chronic lymphocytic leukemia. I'll be seeing it in glioblastomas. And, um, you know, all of these things are um, significant threats to health that uh, have occurred in people with double infection. That's all I can say. And I don't want people to jump out of windows if they have, you know, Lyme disease and say, oh, I'm going to get glioblastoma. No, you're not going to get You're not going to get leukemia enough, and you know, not everybody's going to get everything, but the people who do have the bad disease, we can understand that uh, there is a role for double infection
1: in their disease getting a foothold in their body. And this this work, this blood lymphocyte work that you just did, the CLL. I mean, I think you just submitted a a paper or at least a a cover sheet on this. Just this. Past month, August 11th of 2022, right? So this is something that yes. you've been recently working on, and it sounds like there's going to be some more traction, hopefully, in the near future with this as well.
2: Yeah, I, I have a good friend who's director of a chronic lymphocytic leukemia program, and his his uh, professorship is just in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and he practices in Long Island, which is I'm you know central. Right where we so are. I, so yeah, so I'm going to be looking out to uh, get some uh, more specimens from Long Island CLL patients and see what I can find in those patients. And uh, I hope that I can find some, some interesting results with that.
0: All right, Dr. McDonald, let's now pivot over to uh, something we talked with you about last time, uh, which was the work you're doing on uh, glioblastoma. And um, it's important um, to talk about this, because this is a form of brain cancer that seems to be accelerating. Uh, we know uh, Senator John McCain died from glioblastoma, and there was a finding of spirochetes in, um, in his brain autopsy. Uh, we know the president's son died from glioblastoma. And I did share with you during the last podcast that I have a brother in law who died from a multiform glioblastoma um, after he moved to Long Island after he married my sister. So this is uh, this is becoming more and more prominent in the news. It's becoming a part of our lives, uh, and uh, certainly many elected officials and their families are being touched by this. So let's first talk about what your findings were. Until what your findings were when you did the research, and we talked last time, and that you made some new findings between our last podcast and now, where you've learned uh, there were some open questions last time that you've now found answers to.
2: Now, I think that uh, the the paper that I uh, published in 2016 had uh, cases, uh, two patients, and uh, I used my DNA probes. I had little pieces of the glioblastoma uh, tumor. They drilled a hole in the skull, and then they went in and they took little pieces from the center of the tumor and they sent uh, those uh, little pieces to me. And I, I did the DNA probes and the probes for Borrelia for I lit up like a Christmas tree. I mean, there was so much signal there. You could read the New York Times by the amount of light that was coming out of the fluorescence of those tumors. And it was so bright that you couldn't tell whether it was outside the tumor cells, between the tumor cells, in the tumor cells. You know, you couldn't see where the tumor cells stopped and the blood vessels and other things continued. So all I could say was that uh, there was a, a strong signal and a DNA signal. Then I, I got a... Uh, Um, the idea that um, with my new methods uh, of uh, immunohistochemistry that I could uh, do a mapping of the individual spirochetes without having fluorescence, but having brown or black color the spirochetes in the area of concern. And with those uh, different techniques I could now Cone down an individual glioblastoma cells and see that inside the cell there are black spirochetes, or inside the cell there are brown spirochetes. And so I sent you pictures of that in the handout. And so that's the, that's the update is that the um, spirochetes are inside the tumor cells in big number or wrapped around the tumor cells like a corset. And also between tumor cells, there are blood vessels, and those blood vessels uh, are. Part of the tumor, they're, they're growing crazy, and in those blood vessels, there's spirochetes. So there's spirochetes all over the infield and outfield in glioblastoma. And uh, that's, that's the new update there. And, uh, it, it shows that it is uh, inside the nucleus, therefore, is driving the malignancy from a DNA point of view.
0: So one of the themes that we seem to be developing here with all of the issues that we've talked about so far is that um once the once the bacteria invades the nucleus, that's when that's when we we're really in trouble, right? It, there's yes. really been coming back from that. And that's why we, you know, we have to, you know, we have to make sure there are a number of different steps. And you went over the steps between the tick biting you and ultimately, you know, the the, the bacteria getting into your bloodstream and then getting to you then then getting past the blood-brain barrier and getting into your in, into your brain and then getting to the cells. And I mean, there are just so many different steps before you ultimately have this fatal event for your uh for well your worst event.
2: case let's say worst case scenario in, in in the event let's not uh no but i'm
0: saying i'm, I'm just talking about the but, cell well, your blastoma I mean, is
2: always fatal you're right but i mean yeah. I, in, in other situations it's it's a hepatitis which isn't fatal no, necessarily
0: i don't mean for the person fatal but it, it, it's fatal for that cell right i mean most, oh yes yeah. so, mm-hmm. yeah. the,
2: the, the cell is labeled for death
0: Right. yeah w- once once it invades the the nucleus the the cell itself is yes. longer viable and uh, you know you did share with us that yes. you know losing some brain cells is not a, a unique opportunity. You can go out and get liquored up and you're gonna you're gonna lose some brain cells. so it's not um, you know it's not going to be fatal to us and there there is coming back from that. but of course it is always important that we that we work back not only because um, we want to inspire people, to grit through so many of the challenges they have to grit through in order to be able to deal with this, right? And and, and but it's also important to know that when um, you know when when people in our families are are sick, in many cases there is a solution that isn't necessarily so obvious um, at first glance. And in many yes, cases, um, you know, there is a tie to um, you know to Lyme disease. And, yes. And, and, yes. and 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 it should also inspire all of us collectively. Uh, putting aside just the folks who are largely followers of this podcast, but it should inspire folks collectively to make sure that they are protecting themselves at the earliest stages, that they're avoiding coming in contact with ticks, that they're checking themselves for ticks, that they're getting early intervention that you've also given us some new tools. For example, you know, let's, let's bounce back for a second to the, to the liver studies. Uh, I, I certainly don't think, you know, when you're taking, antibiotics prophylactically, that you should stop taking the antibiotics until your liver levels are stabilized, right? I mean, that should be a test that, that our primary care physicians are using when determining how long we should be using antibiotics and not falling back on some of these you know, these general um, you know, guidelines. I had shared with you that one uh, a couple of years ago before we started this podcast, when I was bitten by a tick, I went to my doctor's office and they gave me five days of, of doxycycline and that was it, you're better, right? Well, there was no mm-hmm. testing. There was no follow-up testing, other than other than six right. weeks later, testing me testing me for the Lyme bacteria only, and I was bitten by a Lone Star tick, which doesn't harbor, um, you know, right. the, the, the Lyme bacteria, right? So, I mean, it, we have these sort of like these 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 very general, um, you know, guidelines that that uh, that clinicians are using. Um, and they should be using patient-specific testing. And I, I would argue, you know, based on the conversation we were having, that some of that patient-specific testing needs to be liver testing, you know, liver-level testing, even if you're yes. asking to the biopsy level, you have to make sure that liver function is, is, um, is normalized before you stop the doxy.
2: I couldn't agree more. I think that's uh, crystal clear.
0: All right, so let's move on to our our, our final topic for the day. Uh, oh, this we, is. Are you tired yet? Are you getting tired? Listen, we would we, we, we keep you forever. We, you, you can't wear us out, but we will wear you out if, uh, if you want to spend oh, this any longer. Um, because we do have, we do have, uh, we also have a request that we're going to make in the community after, um, after we talked about this last topic. But of course, what, one of the most painful and most scary topics in the Lyme disease community is, is suicide. Uh, and we know that that many many people in um, in the Lyme disease community are dealing with uh, you know various uh, neurological and um, emotional and mental health issues and uh, in many cases folks think that you know Lyme disease is a choice that's being made uh, based on the emotional um, issues or the mental health issues or just just the Absolute, you know, um, exhaustion that they're suffering from. But I think you actually have something new to add to this based on the research that you're doing. So can you share with us um, what your research is on uh, on the uh, on on the blood tissue? I'm sorry, the brain tissue that you would, you would receive from someone who who had uh, committed suicide, and, and what your findings were specific to uh, to that
2: research. Okay, this goes back to 2016. Um, I received a, a, a request from a physician who had uh, read about my work. Uh, his daughter at that time was uh, uh, being evaluated for a Lyme disease testing. Uh, and uh, he thought that it might be that she had Lyme disease, but the infectious disease uh, people could not confirm it. So he sent blood from her and I was gonna do DNA testing. I did DNA testing and I, uh, photographed the spirochetes in her blood and they were there in high number, Uh, biofilms in her blood, they were there in high number. And I wrote back and I said, you know, I have DNA evidence and pictures of the spirochetes in her blood. So she, uh, whether or not the antibodies are helpful or not to you, these pictures should be helpful to you because you can actually see the bugs in her blood. They're there in big number and uh, I'm using DNA probes. So there's no false antibody considerations here. It's all DNA stuff. And you know the pictures I sent were, were pretty good textbook pictures of what the spirochete in the blood should look like. And he uh, shared my report with his infectious disease consultant. And the consultant said, uh, I don't really think this is credible work. Uh, her antibody tests are negative. Uh, therefore, uh, I'm not uh, going to treat her And uh, so she didn't get uh, treated uh, for the infection. Uh, Over the next uh, six years, she had uh, uh, spiraling down with uh, psychiatric uh, uh, disturbances, multiple hospitalizations, uh, psychosis, uh, you know, just deterioration and uh, institutionalization and uh, and she came in and out of the institution, and uh, she tried to commit suicide 15 times. Not once, but 15 times. And the 16th time she succeeded. And uh, they decided to uh, have an autopsy and have the brain from the autopsy submitted to Columbia University, which has Lyme disease brain study, and Columbia got the brain, and uh, they proceeded to try to find uh, evidence of spirochetes in her brain. And they worked on that for, um, for, let's see, from January to October. And they were unable to conclusively find any spirochetes in her brain. And I said, well, you know, I know about the case. The father had contacted me. I know that the brain came to you. I would really like to have just a small amount of tissue, would you send me uh, 20 slides from uh, the brain and I will see if I can find it with my DNA probes because Columbia doesn't have my DNA probes. And so uh, they were kind enough to send it to me. Remember they've been looking at it for eight eight months and couldn't find anything with their basic stains for spirochetes. And I got the slides. I processed it for the DNA probes. And two hours later, I found that she had wall-to-wall spirochetes in her autopsy brain. Not subtle. Only with the DNA probes. The regular stains don't didn't show it. Uh, so uh, that was it. Uh, now, um, I've shared the results uh, with the uh, the family and the the father was having a lot of trouble coming to terms with the fact that I had been right and I had been shouted down in 2016 and his daughter didn't get treated, all of that. He came into certain amount of distress about that. Um, And uh, so that's where we were. Now, after I found spirochetes in the brain with my uh, test, I, I did my DNA probes on one slide And in two hours, I found wall-to-wall spirochetes in one slide. That's not the whole brain, just one slide from the deep brain nuclei. And I turned that around, and the next day I told Columbia this is what I found. I sent some pictures. I said, oh, my God, these are beautiful pictures. That was it. Um, I was thinking of reporting the case, but I have held back uh, because it's Columbia's case. And so, uh, you know, the only way I could actually report it is to put this together with the uh, six-year-old blood studies, which showed she was loaded with spirochetes six years before he, she died. And then all the years leading up to her suicide, that six years of 15 suicide attempts, and then the death, and then the brain. I think eventually, since Columbia may not publish it at all, I'll publish it in some form. I was thinking to put it in JAMA psychiatry so that, you know, people can look at it. Columbia has done studies with the Danish uh, Lyme community, and they've found an excess of suicide risk and suicide activity in uh, Danish patients who have chronic Lyme disease. So that's, that's out there. That's not controversial. Um, The the icing on the cake was that I, I went into extra studies with my DNA probes and I went to find evidence that the spirochete had worked its way into the neuron, just like I found in hepatitis, and just like I found in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Uh, no surprise, she has brain neurons that have been skewered like a shish kebab. The spirochete has gone into the neuron and it's in the nucleus. And I've got many, many pictures of spirochetes inside brain cells labeled for death inside her suicide brain. And you have pictures of that in the handout. You'll see them and uh, I'll actually enhance the, the uh, handout so that I'll, I'll put arrows on it in, in the new version so that when you actually uh, share it with the, uh, the group that listens, uh, they can see just the way you can see where the spirochetes are.
1: Well, That's it. thank you for sharing that story. I mean, look, the, the question I want to follow up with, I have several, is when you have chronic Lyme disease, putting all the physiological stuff aside, and the spirochetes invading your brain, and the spirochetes invading your neurons, and causing the this, this, this psychological conditions, you can't help but be sad and depressed because your life is so significantly altered. So I know many of us in the chronic Lyme community often wonder, is it really the Lyme bacteria causing me to feel this way? Or is it just how I am because my life is so different now? So what is your view on that, Dr. McDonald? Are you telling everybody listening to this podcast that yes, there's a piece of it that is you are sad and depressed because your life is now different. But also far beyond that, there is a component of the the spirochetes causing psychological illness that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Well, in the
2: cases that we've discovered here with uh, liver, with leukemia, with glioblastoma multiforme, and with the suicide patient, the common feature is that all of these severe or life-threatening or life-ending scenarios in chronic Lyme disease can be wrapped in the same package as pharoketes getting into the nerve, into the nerve cell, and then causing trouble with the nerve cell or eventually maybe killing the nerve cell. So if the nerve cells are killed, uh, you know, you're going to be, uh, uh, you're going to be, uh, in a situation where, uh, it's, it's a severe illness and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh what, 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 can I say? It's, it's, it's just, these, these, are con- these are severe, kind these are, at the extremes of what can happen in some people, but not everybody who has Lyme Borreliosis, but some people who have the worst case scenario can get this because it's gotten into the nerve. So the, the goal is to keep it so it doesn't get into the nerve and doesn't if, get into the
1: nucleus, it doesn't kill the cell. If it's and in the nerve, it it's outside. If you can kill it outside the cell, you're better off. But if it's in the nerve and in the nucleus and inside the cell, that can cause psychiatric symptoms that you wouldn't have otherwise have had. Is that correct? yeah I mean, I don't know how uh, loss of nerves or or inflammation actually causes a
2: psychiatric product, but there are many psychiatric illnesses, and uh, not everybody has the same uh, study if you if your brain is studied after you pass away, they, they don't all show the same things under the microscope. So it's very, very, very complicated. It used to be said, and I still think it's true, that man is incapable. Of looking at his own brain or his neighbor's brain and figuring out how the brain works, it's too it's above my pay grade. I can't do it. All I can do is saying I'm going to ring the alarm, uh, send the alarm bell out that uh, there is a disease process that has gotten into the nerve or gotten into the brain, and that that's all I can tell you. I can't tell you how it's going to play out downstream, whether you're going to get better whether you're going to have a chronic problem a disability uh, a, an illness uh, a, a God forbid a pro- a tumor I, I can't tell you which which way people are going to go with, a, with this different pathway but the the, the the common feature is that the spirochete invades it invades the skin it invades the blood it invades the lymphatic system it invades uh, different organ systems. It sets up housekeeping in various sites and not everybody gets every site the same way. It could set up in the eye, it set up in the, you know, there's, there's so many possible combinations. It's just like the biology of syphilis. Everything that I've learned in my research, I have stolen from syphilis, I've stolen it. And I followed the model that's, that was given to me in medical school. This is what syphilis can do to the body. I read the textbook, I committed it to memory. I just said, okay, I'm gonna use that model as a model for my research and I've used it religiously and it's paid off for me, It's paid off. And, you know, I mean, not that I've gotten money from doing any of these things or, you know, charge anybody for any of these tests but uh, intellectually it's paid off for me. You know, I wanna give back because I, I can't write prescriptions for people so I can't give back that free medical care but maybe I can give a little insight to people so that they can understand their, their their situation a little better. That's all I can hope for. See, this is my way of giving back with my microscope. You know, my microscope helps me give back.
1: My final comment before Rich picks up to talk about how our listeners can help you and contribute to the cause is, you know, we interviewed Dr. Leo Shea III, a the, probably the leading tick-borne illness neuropsychiatrist out of New York City, and he believes that all mental health issues are connected to some physiological condition, right? And he has worked with countless doctors and patients and been able to do a lot of work in connecting Lyme in the brain to psychological conditions. So there is a lot of other work being done there that we have another podcast episode on too that people can listen to if they're listening to this and want to learn more about Lyme and psychological conditions. And from there, I think Rich wants to jump in and talk about quickly how people can help uh, you, Dr. Dr. McDonald, in, in your efforts.
0: So, uh, Dr. McDonald, you you spent your entire career on the outer edge of um, of uh, the line uh, establishment, and um, you know we we have you know, on many occasions argued not only on your podcast but when talking about you that um, you were always ahead of the curve, uh, but it was hard to stay ahead of the curve because it's difficult to get money to support the research you're doing when you're so far ahead of the curve. So you were right 30 years ago, and we're sure you're right now, but the traditional um, research sources of uh, resources are, are are certainly more interested in funding mainstream research rather than, I'll call it McDonald research. Uh, yes. so talk <laughs> to us about talk to us about how we can help as a community and, and how we can uh, further uh, you know the advancements that you're making uh before the mainstream community is uh is prepared
2: well i was uh um committed to spend uh about uh fifty thousand dollars of my own money out of inheritance i I spent money to buy equipment and uh, get set up and uh i'm glad i did that and i got additional help from a, a, a fundraiser which is a Go fund me uh, around twenty thousand dollars for getting supplies and that was uh, way back uh, oh, no, seven eight years ago um, what I'm what, what I'm trying to uh, uh, ask for uh, people who are interested in, in supporting is to get money just for the cost of publishing the papers because I have all these papers ready to go and in order to get uh, uh, success in publishing uh, you go through the peer review they say yes it's ready to publish and now In order for us to publish it, we have to get four thousand dollars for each paper that you publish, and so I don't have the extra four thousand dollars times six or seven, you know, to. So I'm looking for help from the community to see if they might want to send uh, twenty-five or fifty dollars or something to the GoFundMe, just for the publication costs, you know, to pay pay for the publishing, so I can get some of these published. Because if it's not published, it's not credible. And to me it's credible without being published but for most of the people in the world they have to see it published before it's credible and then that once it's published and credible then it helps patients out there who need that evidence to get the medical care that they're seeking and are being denied uh, because it's not published. Um, so that's, that's where I am and I, I have a GoFundMe site and I uh, would uh, you know, let people know about it if they're interested in sending, you know, small com- contribution and then over scale, maybe I can get uh, some money to publish these uh, articles.
0: Dr. McDonald, we're going to make sure that we put this information of the GoFundMe page into our show notes. We're going to make sure that we do promote this as well on our, on our various social media so we can get uh, more attention to this because it is really important that uh, these really important topics be uh, made part of the public record and uh, we did talk last time about the importance of, of the research data being available, not only for the purposes of moving forward with uh, the research, but giving clinicians the protection they need when they're doing the work they're doing. Because if we don't have uh, published research to support what clinicians are doing, it becomes pretty easy for um, you know uh, medical boards to attack the license of doctors who are deemed to be Acting outside of the acceptable medical practices, so uh, you know one of one of the one of the best ways of I think protecting the clinicians who are willing to do the work we need them to do for us is by making sure that these papers get published. So there are, there there are very important reasons, but we're going to talk about it from a selfish standpoint. We in the community can't complain about doctors who are trying to help us being put in a box and not being able to help us if we're not willing to uh, spend some of our resources to help change the way that these, these papers are published and the information is made available. So it gives cover to the clinicians who are willing to, to be more aggressive. So uh, we, we can't thank you enough for not just spending time with us, Dr. McDonald, but for all the great work you're doing for the community. Um, you're an absolute blessing to us and to our entire community. And uh, we, we really, we love you and we thank you for everything. <laughs> you
2: Thank you very much. That's so kind. Thank you. I'm happy to help.
0: Thank you for listening to our special Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Alan McDonald. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Alan McDonald, please visit our profile on the Tick Bootcamp website. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick By Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We are due to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note, if there are any helpful hints or tricks or changes you'd like to offer to us for the blueprint, we'd be happy to get your input. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.